What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support the podcast in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, and uh, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And uh, doing all those things will uh, propel the podcast into the tops of the iTunes charts, giving it more visibility and helping strangers find the podcast giving it more exposure on the national and international level. Appreciate the hell out of anybody that's already taken the time to do so. It only takes a few minutes, and uh, it's just a great way to contribute to the sustainability of this thing and helping grow the show. And uh, you can also check out the Dan Cable Presents YouTube channel, which features a bunch of in-studio performances as well as live show performances from different Portland bands and touring bands. So if you want to know what's good with those, go ahead and click subscribe on that channel as well, and then uh, it'll notify you anytime fresh videos hit the feed. You can also check out dancablepresents.com, which is the central location for finding everything. The new episode always uploads there as soon as it is available. And at dancablepresents on Instagram is the place to keep up with me on the old Social media is trying to shout out local shows going on or uh, upcoming guests of the podcast and, and things of that nature. But uh, I'm going to try and not waste too much time up top here because we have what is maybe the longest episode uh, to date on this thing. We've got episode 181 with Tobias Grave, the front man for the band Soft Kill. And uh, I've been sitting on this conversation for a little while. It's uh, it's one we recorded, I don't know, maybe a month ago, five, six weeks ago, maybe even a little bit longer. Uh, it was it was right after Pickathon, which was the place where I met Tobias, and I had the opportunity to uh, interview him and his bandmate Conrad there uh, as a part of some of the interview series that I did at the Pickathon Music Festival and uh, I let him know that I had this podcast and uh, he seemed really interested in in doing a long-form conversation with me so incredibly grateful that that he was uh, super down to do this and uh, cleared out a couple hours to come down to the library in Portland, Oregon in the basement of Growler's Tap Room to uh, to chat it up with me for a couple hours. And it's very cool, man. I, I've, uh, I've fallen in love with this band, Softkill, and have so much respect for the music that they have been putting out. And I just kind of immersed myself in, in the discography, preparing to, to talk to him and Conrad at 
at Pickathon and then even further so after knowing that I was going to get to sit down with him for a more long-form interview. Um, and I knew that this was going to be a special one. I didn't know that it would uh, have as much meaning as it did when we were done. And this is probably, not probably, this is the most important episode of this podcast to me. It is my favorite episode of the podcast. I think that uh, these are the types of conversations that I wanted to have from the beginning and and something I had been chasing down and the the transparency and the humility offered through this episode and the life experiences shared by Tobias throughout this thing is uh, was very special to me to to get to sit down and have this type of conversation with this dude and and we certainly talked about music and uh, things that inspire him. Um, I will tell you that we didn't we didn't dive a whole lot into soft kill stuff as far as specific records and, and diving into uh, song for song or, or anything like that. So I hope for the, the soft kill fans that have tuned into this podcast for the first time, you're not super disappointed that we didn't break down much of that stuff. But I'm hoping around the time that, that the band drops their new record in early 2020, I know they just put out their new single tinfoil drip not too long ago and we're gonna kick the episode off with that song and and like i said i I hope we have the opportunity to, to talk more about music another time but what we did dive into was far more important to me and seems far more important to tobias and that is sharing his uh life experiences of uh, a life of of crime and addiction and um, just really illuminating the uh, the drug epidemic that exists in this world and uh, this country and specifically here in Portland Oregon and he just offered so much insight into the mind of an addict and and uh, what that can be like and um, I think it was very eye-opening and and sobering and and um, I hope that it helps people see those folks that you see on the street that are struggling that you might see as a a low-life junkie out there. I, I hope it makes you uh, think twice about what that person is experiencing. And and uh, I think we're so conditioned from an early age to, to look down upon those people and um, kind of think that they are just wasting their life and um, 
I just hope that this conversation provides some some compassion and some understanding and um, some perspective on what it is like to be one of those people out on the street that are chasing down a high so that they can get well. Because those people are uh, they're human beings and uh, they have stories too. And one of the things I you know, take away from this conversation is how privileged I feel to have not had to deal with this level of addiction. And I just appreciate the fuck out of how Tobias is using his platform to uh, to not let the deaths of all of his friends be in vain and to uh, illuminate the issues and to uh, try to provide help for the folks that are looking for help. And I will definitely put all the links in the episode notes that uh, that may be a resource for folks who are struggling, organizations that Tobias have, has uh, recognized as, as things that might be helpful to folks. But uh, yeah, man, this episode is so important and, and personal to me because I lost one of my best friends and, and probably the person that's been closest to me that I've lost to death, um, Brayden Hamilton, the, uh, the genius who, who created um, the intro for this podcast that uh that jam that comes on that has become synonymous with this podcast and uh, a dude that i miss dearly misses hugs and his enormous heart and uh, the way that he would light up a room and just an incredible creative mind just an amazing ear for music and a witty smart individual who just had such a big impact on uh on all the lives that he he touched and and uh we lost him a year ago um last week september 21st and i think a year of somebody passing causes uh for a lot of reflection and uh grateful that i was able to get together with some of his friends and family last week for um for a few days to share stories and and uh to continue to keep his spirit alive and and somebody i think about daily and um and just so inspired by so um, it was very special for me to get to have this conversation with Tobias and kind of get some insight on um, what it is like to be an addict. And um, just because somebody is an addict or struggles 
heavy with uh you know drug addiction or any addiction doesn't mean that they're uh they're not great people you know and sometimes i think the disease obviously gets the best of folks and um it can make it difficult to sustain relationships and 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 things of that nature but um Braden Hamilton, my man, I miss you. I love you. I hope you're resting easy. I uh, I feel you all around me often, and uh, your spirit is not lost upon me or the you know the folks that I know that knew you hold you hold you close so this is a very special episode for me to get to share around this time and once again i just want to thank tobias so much for his transparency in this conversation soft kill is such a cool fucking band they probably have the coolest merch too and do so many limited runs i know they just uh reissued uh their record heresy and an open door just got reissued on vinyl and uh, definitely check out all the merch. I will put the links in the episode notes so you can follow all of that as well. And like I said, I will put all those resources in there. They are playing in Portland, Oregon on Halloween at Mississippi studios, which is one of the greatest venues in this city. So uh, I would say that's a pretty prime opportunity to check them out if you're in the portland area if you're not in the portland area you should follow them because they uh do all kinds of touring all over the country and uh sometimes in other parts of the world so definitely give them a follow so you know when they are coming to a uh a city near you so stoked to share this thing man Episode 181, Soft Kill is on the show. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of heaviness to this episode, but there's also a lot of good laughs. So I don't want you to think that it's all it's all darkness. And uh, but like I said, this is uh, these are the types of conversations that I want to be having on this podcast. And I invite those in. And these are the types of conversations that inspire me to uh keep on with this thing so uh, thank you again for tuning in thanks for checking out the show if if this is your first time listening you're a soft kill fan thank you so much for checking this thing out hope you go back check out previous episodes or ones we've got coming at you ahead like i said fresh episodes coming at you every friday can't stress the importance of those itunes reviews enough so more people can uh, can find these types of conversations. We are kicking the episode off with the uh, the freshest single that has been released from Soft Kill. It's uh it's called Tinfoil Drip, and there's a killer video for it that uh, is filmed in downtown and the east side of Portland, and uh, it's dedicated to those that uh, that Soft Kill has lost to the streets due to the disease of addiction. And this is it. Tim Foyle Drip, episode 181. Let's do the damn thing.
this thing, Tobias. Yeah, sure. Ready to jump in, man. I am uh, I'm stoked to sit down and, and chat it up with you. Had the opportunity to meet you at Pickathon this uh, this past week. Yeah. And um, yeah, man, I've, you're... Your band was new to me up until like the last month. Like I'd I'd heard the name, but I'd I hadn't really ever jumped into the tunes and Pickathon's kind of this thing that always leads me to a bunch of bands that I didn't know about before, but kind of end up becoming some of my favorite bands. And I've definitely your music is has made an impact on me the last month for sure of of diving into it really heavy. And and I think a lot of it is kind of just trying to dive in and, and find out like what the inspiration for the music is and and the weight that comes with all that so kind of stoked to to jump into all that stuff but also just uh some of the other things that that we connected with on that day were just like sports and hip-hop or some of the things that we just kind of started talking about and whatnot and um yeah those are that's i guess like the integral parts of my dna <laughs> Um, sports and hip-hop sports and hip-hop <laughs> i mean other stuff too but yeah for sure no i just think those. i i know you're probably a band that kind of gets maybe pigeonholed sometimes about like what you might be like yeah sometimes yeah. all the time um it's really wild to see you shattering the expectations somebody has for who you are like right before your eyes um i think you know this was such a it's like this genre and i hate saying this genre because it contradicts the fact that i don't think we're defined by like post-punk or goth or, or at one point we were called death rock which i thought was was really fucking hilarious <laughs> death rock yeah which is like in my mind christian death this kind of more like punky, dark, it's, a, it's just a sound. And when and I feel like I've got enough of a music vocabulary that when I say death rock to certain people, like we know what we're talking about, you know, and it's definitely not us. Um, but, you know, the genre, like people, it's become so clicky. It's become a legitimate thing, bands that are influenced by Depeche Mode and The Cure and Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, that, uh, you know, eventually, like, people just start to define their life by it, you know, in the same way that punks wear leather jackets with right crass back patches or whatever. <laughs> um, they expect us to be a certain way. Um, and because we seem to be, like, in the upper tier of the bands, of, like, popular bands, they really expect us to be part of it. You know, like, they expect us to walk in and pointy leather Italian boots and smoke clothes and instead we're outside shooting dice <laughs> listening to Cameron and they're like what yeah just just having a good time and, and bullshitting yeah and I think some people love that and then certain people are just very upset about it yeah I think that's been one of my favorite parts of kind of doing this podcast over the years is that you know when you do listen to to music and and you don't have the opportunity to meet the artists you start assuming things about them i think maybe like through the music yeah and i think for me i definitely grew up part of like whatever the punk subculture and in the 90s like you would send uh 
essay, your self-addressed stamped envelope. I almost said S-A-S-E. Um, some people might not know what that is. A self-addressed stamped envelope to a band that I'd never met or seen a picture of outside of like whatever it was on the back of a seven inch and, you know, wait six months to a year for a letter and patches or a tape or something else. And there was a lot of mystery to it. Um, and then that band finally comes to your town and you, you see it and you're like, whoa, that's what this is or that's who they are. Um, and now everything is so accessible. Like now if I get into a band, I'll listen to the record and then I, I, I'll YouTube for like the live stuff, see what they look like and what the vibe is. And right. then I'll like listen to an interview and, you know, a lot of times I do that with stuff I don't like just because I really love to punish myself. Um, <laughs> Do you, do you ever find that maybe finding an interview or something, though, from a, someone you don't like makes you second guess what you thought about that person? Uh, coincidentally, I just watched that Meek Mill documentary. Okay. The free Meek one. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. It's unbelievable. Um, God, I don't even want to, like, dig into the specifics of why it was incredible to me. But Meek Mill is somebody who, when he came on the scene... He had that first video with Rick Ross where they're riding dirt bikes and doing wheelies. Um, and the sight of Rick Ross on, on a quad is like one of the funniest things. Like it <laughs> plays in my mind all the time, you know? Um, but I dug that song. And then after a while, I just like, yo, this rapper is like one dimensional. I was always really into the Smack DVDs, like the freestyle DVDs back in the day where dudes would do battles and... I was like really into Dipset, so like 40 Cal and all these these rappers that people probably don't even know about would do these DVDs where they're just like in the cipher and they're going at each other. And uh, Meek is that energy and that spirit, but ultimately I thought it seemed one-dimensional. I wasn't listening to the words. And I watched that documentary and got to see interviews with him and some context and walked away like, I probably cried like three times, and I walked away like, okay, you know. Knowing the human element of somebody can be like the blessing or curse. Yeah, agreed, man. And it's, I don't know, it can completely shape the way I look at the art that you create, you know, getting that insight. And I think that's been one of the exciting things, uh, diving into the soft kill stuff for me is, is, you know, finding out where some of that music has been inspired from because... I don't know. I don't. I don't dislike bands like The Cure or Depeche Mode, but those are. I. I'm not going to be the person that ever like puts that music on. Probably, you know. I. I. I, yeah, I respect it, but it's not like my favorite thing. Right. So it's. Uh, it's been very cool to like. I don't know. I've fallen for your band, and it's. It's funny for me to like. I'm. I don't know. I'm. I'm driving around listening to it, and I'm just like, I can't believe I like this so much. I'm so into this music. And then having the opportunity to kind of hang with you at Pickathon and talk to you a little bit about the music and just to get to know you as a person. Now, now I love the music even more because I like the person who is making it and the perspective that they bring, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, so for me, I don't, I don't know why I would never like like call myself like a goth and I don't think that at any point in my life that that kind of music defined who I was there was a period where 
those specific records and tones and textures. And mind you, like at these points in my life, I'm like struggling with heroin and opiate addiction in general. And there was something about the tones of, you know, guitar through chorus or uh, just kind of how Robert Smith's like, you know, how he sung spoke to me at those moments. And it wasn't because I considered myself a sad bastard or just somebody that, you know, there's these people that, that exist solely in their traumas. Um, and I'm not here to like judge who's like been through shit and who hasn't. But for me, I liked everything all across the board. But when I started creating music as like a songwriter, that's just what came out. It kind of locked into that. Now, um, I think the trick for us of, first of all, the Kieran Depeche Mode are two of the biggest bands in the world. Right. So even if you don't put the Kier on when specific songs come on or specific Depeche Mode songs come on, you know, or uh, songs by the church or Echo of the Bunny Man, like you hear it and you go, that's a great song. Because it connects to like maybe the movie that you saw it in or that, that vibe in that era. It's like so 80s or whatever. But I just tried to take that and combine it with what I think is like real American rock and roll, like the replacements. Um, you know, bands, of, bands like that, like Tom Petty. That stuff's super integral. We were talking about Dire Straits, who yeah. are like the best American band from England. Um, well, is that why it's like so important to you then to do like that Tom Petty cover that you did? When Tom, Tom Petty... What I learned from Tom Petty is something about the interplay between all the different instruments. So there's, you listen and you hear the space that the drums, the two guitars and the bass occupy, and then like how the synth weaves in and out. So for me, I, as initially as a songwriter, it was just like this barrage. I would write things where like just everything is full bore the entire time. If you listen to the first record, the production is really reserved in a sense. Like it, it kind of lessens the extremity of that, but ultimately it's just relentless in a way. Like I view it to be relentless. And like Tom Petty, I learned about like, you know, when the vocal comes in, like this one guitar has to drop out. When the synth comes in, it has to play in a certain octave range. And his storytelling was beautiful to me. You know, even if it's like the great white, like that, those songs, like, you know, where he's telling the story of somebody and you're like, yo, that's that. But then there's songs where he's not telling the specific story so literal, but it still transports you to that. And I really loved that. So when he passed away, I just burst into tears and then immediately went and recorded that. It was one of those like natural things. And I've done that a couple of times. I did that when Lux Interior from The Cramps died, a band I was in. I went and recorded a cover of Human Fly. And... You know, it's. I think it's like for me, like you face m like mortality when people you look up to die, and then you also. It's really weird because music's so therapeutic to know that you'll never get a chance to experience that live. Do you know what I mean? Like you have these cathartic experiences live, and it's like boom, and it feels like a drug. 
And then like, well, I'm not going to get that from Tom Petty ever again. And that feels like a huge loss. Yeah. I, I'm a huge Petty fan. So it's cool. It's cool to hear like your take of insider, you know, of, yeah, you know, and, and it's kind of through that soft kill filter. Um, yeah, I got to see him on like that last tour for the first time. I finally got to see him and, and it was still so banging. And everybody said that, that he was, all of his shows were still so cool. But going back to like some of the stuff you were talking about, the, I think it was really cool when Petty came on the scene too, because they didn't really know how to define what genre even that fit into at the time. And they would play with punk bands sometimes early on or, it's you know. so it's there's moments of it where I'm like, oh, this is like new wave in the way that the cars are new wave. And there's times where I'm like, oh, no, this is like classic dad rock. Yeah. And then there's moments where I just what's really unique and cool about it. And ZZ Top did this, too, where they were just relevant throughout these changes culturally, you know, because music television really came and in some ways fucked everything up. But. They adapted, and that's what's cool. Like, I mean, to me, like, when I look at, like, the parallels, like, American Girl, like, the opening guitar line and then the bass line over it, that, to me, I always make the joke that that's the best post-punk riff of all time. <laughs> but it's not, you know, it's yeah, not no. definitively that, but it is. Like, it plays in that same register and that vibe, and I love it. Like, it speaks to me, you know? That and, like... Early, like a lot of ZZ Top stuff. ZZ Top is like, again, this is like you talk about shattering the expectations people have. ZZ Top is huge to me. Um, dire Straits is huge. The replacements, when they're on, is integral, you know? Yeah. Would, would you uh, say it's fair to say that the music's pretty, that, that soft kill makes is, is cinematic or theatrical? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think that when a song speaks to me, there's two things that make me go, and this is limiting, like, you know, admittedly limiting, because music has to be more than this, right? Um, theoretically. Um, if it really hits a song when I'm listening back to a demo, it's either because I can picture driving anywhere that I'm going to it, or I can picture it being the montage soundtrack in that part of the movie where like, they're like, yo, we got to fill two minutes. So they just cut to clips of a bunch of shit happening. Um, the best ever is in Superfly when everyone's just doing the coke and they're de they deal the whole, you know, 30 kilos like through like pictures. Um, whatever song you put there is so important. So I picture it in a film that doesn't exist. Because um, to me, like that's what makes a lot of the movies that I love so integral, you know, like a movie like Jackie Brown or Breakfast Club, like these things you go out and then like anytime I listen to the Delphonics, I can picture those specific scenes in that movie, you know, like connecting it together. That context is weird. Um, it gives it new life, you know. So I think like a lot of these songs that we write, I go, that could be in in a movie. And that's when I know we should try it for the record. Yeah, I, I get the... That's the vibe I get listening to the music. It feels very cinematic to me. And and I think that's why I like to... Um, I kind of appreciate listening to your music kind of front to back if possible, or at least dive into, you know, a few songs instead of, you know, having one jam on a playlist or something. Right. That's... And, and uh, 
sequencing is like the sequence of tracks is super important. I've always loved albums. So there's like albums that crushed. Cursive's Domestica. Um, I'm going to go blank here in terms of like other ones that really I just hit. love your spectrum for like... It's all over the place. For music, because, yeah, and I uh, think that's why I, like, connected with you, too, because I feel like mine is also very all over the place like that. And that's why I like your band, too, because I hear a lot of those post-rock bands that I really dig. Even, even I don't know if you're familiar with the band, like, Thrice. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite bands, and I can kind of hear some of those, like, melodic guitar parts and stuff in, in your music. You know, being alienated from just being a scenester because, like, drugs came before. Like, music for me has been this really like pure kind of bubble without expectations of how the world would digest it for so long. Cause I was high, you know, like I was living that lifestyle. Um, so I never like, there's a lot of my friends that would go like, I wouldn't listen to thrice because thrice is warp tour, emo, buffoonery, emo <laughs> bullshit. But for me, like I found things throughout all of that. Like I had a period where, I got Cursive's Domestica and like just thought the cover was interesting. And I was, it was during that era where emo had a specific aesthetic and I really dug bands like Piebald and like the early Get Up Kids stuff and Promise Ring and that shit. So I saw that and figured that would be what it was. And it wasn't. It's something in all of its own. Cursive's Domestica to me is like one of the like most important records to me ever. Just the interplay of how it flows through the whole record, the story that it tells. Um, God, it still affects me. So when I like put, even if I don't listen to it, like when I put songs, put a record together and I take like what I've written or what Conrad and I have collaborated and I start putting it in a pile, I start sequencing. And I do that early on with demos. So. Once there's enough to start putting together the framework of an album, it's like, that's the opener. That's the this. And you can look at it like from the vinyl standpoint, too, where like you get two starts. You get the start of the B-side, too. So you got to have a banger there. The outro can either be huge and cinematic or crazy, or it could be like Weezer's Butterfly. It could be something where you just... St the mood of the whole record prior to that doesn't define this and you go out in this weird way and i've never done that yet but it's like i think about that a lot i'm like you end with like this intimate acoustic you know what i mean like that kind of vibe like might be giving a hint at to, at to the next record you know but like that's influential to me too like all that shit yeah that's rather that's had that big of an impact on you when you when you're sequencing now you're still kind of thinking about how that record it was put together like that cursive record and just got, there's other records too that did that but it's like that one is so dope how the songs lock together um bands don't do a lot of, i mean this is like the age of the single and in mainstream music yeah these bands do this these singles and like a lot of people come to us and they go yo play whirl and i get like that Whirl might be considered by the greater mass of people the best song that I've ever written. Like, there, okay, so you're, like, you're gonna rock with it. It's candy, it's like easy to digest. But for me, it's more frustrating. I'm not like the person that rejects what people love because 
anything that gets people through the door to like experience it and to like take their money and put it in our pockets so we can get to the next place is important. But for me, I'm like, yo, Whirl, like, Whirl is like the segue to Frankie and Frankie's the segue to wake up and on the inside and that choke, like those first four songs on the A side, I can't really listen to the B side of that record, but those four, the way that they're sequenced, I thought was so good. So I'm like, yeah, great. Yeah, we'll get to Whirl. We play it last for a reason, you know? It's not because everyone will walk out. We're just like, yeah, we're going to play it at the end so everyone acts like a fucking psycho. <laughs> then flips out. Yeah, and then, like, that's that. And it happens. Like, it's, it's, an, it's like, kind of no-brainer at this point. And I like playing the song. I don't resent it. But I also wish people would rock albums because that's what rules. You know what I mean? Like, albums are what rule. Yeah, to me, it still does. And I don't know. I've tried to be also like open to the the single thing you know and i've i've started to do some dj sets the last couple couple months so that's kind of made me even more into the single thing of you know just cycling through records and trying to find that that jam but man a record front to back where you don't want to turn off any of the songs there's there's nothing and new water did that like new water's biggest songs seem to always be like these singles like we just did a 12 inch ep we never have done that. Like, we've done a couple seven-inch singles, but I've always thought, like, yo, should we just be, like, smacking fools with 12-inch singles, <laughs> you know? Like, that's the vibe. Like, that's what people want. In hip-hop, like, that's, like, a huge factor. But now, what's cool is there's, like, an ebb and flow to that where, like, you know, the mainstream does the single. And I'm so used to hearing, like, a rap song that I just love and being like, oh, that's his, that's his song. And then when I find a project where it's, like, a full album that smacks me, which is hard to do in rap because of how formulaic. And, and I respect that it's just kind of quickly hobbled together and thrown out there. Like, I love the hustle of that. But sometimes, like, there's not a lot of full projects that, that kill me. Yeah, and, and but then you get shit that raises the bar so heavy, like Bandana from Freddie and, yeah. and Mad Lib. And, and then you're like, oh, complete rap record. Yes, that is a big one. Um, uh, West Side Guns, uh, Fly God, the newest one that came out, is just like that. Um, Freddie, I mean, the Freddie Madden one, it's hard because it's like they put together this crazy puzzle. You it's know, lethal. they knew. Yeah, yeah it's insane. Um, but like Benny the Butcher... Yeah, we were talking. That, that was one of the, the people yeah. we connected on that day was Benny the Butcher, who Benny I've the Butcher, gotten really into. Westside Gun um, have both put out projects recently that, like, blow my fucking mind. And then, but even, like, the I like the trap, hood rat, crazy-ass shit, because I used to run around and do that shit, and it's like... Like Lil Durk, Sign of the Streets, 2.5. You know, that might not be one that people hear the first few songs on that, like, my wife and I will jam those all the time and sing every single word. You, know? um, you get down with Mick Jenkins at all? I know what that is. Mick Jenkins. I have to turn you on to this. There's a record called The Healing Component, and it's it's maybe my favorite like conceptual hip-hop album okay. that's come out in the last few years just because it, it has such a, a cool a cool flow to it. Like Talk about sequencing. It's surrounded by this this conversation that flows throughout like in between each track just about the healing component of the heart and all yeah, this yeah. crazy shit so it's yeah um, Dude, the roots things fall apart that's like another one where i'm like 
when I got that CD, I would read the notes because there's a concept to each track. Like they've got that one that just sounds like the worst done basement track ever. The beat doesn't even yeah. match. And they're like, yo, we used to get tapes like that in Philly back in, you know, <laughs> the early 90s. And that was the influence of this. And I'm like, yo, what a chance to take, you know. And that's another thing, too. Uh, my friend Nate Preston, shout out Nate. He's like, to me, he'd hate to be for someone to say this, but I consider him like a Portland legend. Don't get weird if you ever hear this, Nate. Um, just since a lot of bands that really did it for me, like really made me think outside the box. He said the other day, he went, yo, a record can't just be bangers. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? Because in my mind, I'm sitting there like, yo, the next record is all fire. It's all flamers. Like, just you're going to get hit with a 50-round drum right to the face the second that you open the door. And he's like, yeah, but it can't all be bangers, right? Like, you, there's got to be some, some shit and weirdness. Like, that's what makes Orchestra perfect. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I thought about it. He's like, you already know this, though. Like, I don't need to tell you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know that. And I went home and thought about it. Like, I really dissected that and went, yo, there is interludes and, like, tracks that don't build to where you expect them to go. Like, you're waiting for that beat to drop and it doesn't. Or, like, you're waiting for the hook that never gets there. But that makes the next song that is perfect hit so much harder, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was like, fuck, how did I, like, how have I not been including that? You know, like, that that concept into the recipe of like creating records. Cause like you think about, um, I heard records like, you know, Jay retards blood visions. That record is relentless from start to finish. It's just all hit, hit, hit. You're like, Oh, okay. But it's also like 15 fucking minutes long, 20 minutes long. Um, but there's a lot of records where you have these, like these breather breaks. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you redline the whole record, I think it becomes a little less special. But but I and but I'm like, why not. though? You know, like why is it like that? I don't know. <laughs> but even like, um, all like the early Metallica records that were fucking super heavy. There's those moments where they would take those breathers and yeah. and have some like really melodic like guitar playing and and slow things or down a bit. Intros or, or the like, intros. I mean. When they, when I heard one for the first time of just hearing like it's a like, vocal narration from a movie for the first yes. time, kind of that was maybe one of the first times that that collided for me, and it was just like, oh, this is a whole nother layer like, to the production of this. Like thing. most white American boys, Metallica was my first band, you know, Same. and my dad and my uncle work in the music industry on a on this crazy depth to like their own personal stories um and my dad took us backstage to metallica's injustice for all tour i think we went twice and i was fucking blown away and that record still to me is the best metallica record but there's the intro just a yeah. like that whole build-up sets the whole thing that elements of that like need to be in a record even something that just feels like a, ends abruptly to where you are like, what was that? You know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, I'm trying to think of that song that's on maybe one of the most, like the most recent record on Savior, the one that like 
it's real heavy and then it goes out with the acoustic and you think maybe it's going somewhere else and it might be on choke i i listened to so much of your music this morning that yeah <laughs> but it might be hard candy um but that's i don't know that was kind of like one of those moments that where, where i was just like oh where's this going and it's just like oh no this is just the end of the song or they're just gonna you know play it out with this little oh i think that's i think that's jet. wake up yeah yeah let's wake up i always forget that there's that acoustic on that and like that was one of those we're in the studio and oh yeah go in there and just do that real quick that's <laughs> a great idea you know when you think you're like this true artist you have this moment and to be honest i would say that like conrad and i who seem to be constants in the studio because it's been kind of revolving with everybody else the past couple records um we go in there With not much like idea of like what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> we don't know what the fuck we're doing. Like, are there uh, tracks that you have shown each other? Yeah, no. There's rehearsed songs and going in, but you walk in and just. I mean, with with Savior, like Ben Greenberg, who produced that. Shut up, Ben. He pushed us in certain directions. You know, like, oh, we're gonna try that. We're gonna push that. That's this should be like that. And it was that record was so. That record, the the birth of it, like why it exists, was such a like tragic, hard time, right? So that's a therapeutic, processing life as it's happening album. So he didn't do too much. Like he was, he protected it the way that it should have been. But in product, you know, post production, like in mixing it, like he he went he went nuts and did his thing. Um, the the last the next thing that's coming out. Um, we're actually doing like a label announcement at the end of this month, um, for the new album and everything, which is, it's, it's ready. Um, we're going into the studio, but like we've already recorded with this producer already for a couple tracks towards the record. And one thing that's not going to be on the record that's about to drop vague, um, that producer pushed us in a manner where we went in and tried all this stuff and got to like learn how to like build the different element we were talking earlier like this is where this goes and this is how that has yeah. to be and you have to play in this the fucking what's the term like octave ranges like you can't have a bass and a baritone guitar playing the same octave range or it just becomes mush so he pushed us on that level and there was just like little things like vox used to make these basses that had built-in effects and they've got this distortion and it's for some people probably unusable but if we just went in and you'd play like ring out the bass notes through that but then play the regular bass line just straight on top of it and you've got this multi-layered thing that is musical you know what i mean like that type of stuff and we didn't walk in there with those ideas. I feel like we now possess those ideas now from learning through that. But it's like, you, I think we go in with the demos dialed to a, like 60 to 80%. So there's room for them to expand into something different. And that's like integral part of like when you think, think about producers. Like a producer is the person that goes in there and pushes the song to where it's supposed to be. And if you're super attached and you go in there like a big baby that's like, this is my child that I'm bringing to you. Yeah. Like, this isn't childcare. You know, this is, you're bringing it to school. Like, they're going to teach your fucking kid. You're and going to help other people understand your idea. Exactly. And that's a lot of times, like, you know, you can't have this, like, deep personal attachment 
Um, it's not like they're going in and saying, don't sing those words, you know? Right. It's more like, yo, that guitar, those two guitars are... They're conflicting. Yeah, they're conflicting. Yeah. Like, do that and... Well, um, it's... Uh, I th- do you th- think that's also just part of growing as an artist, though, of, of, you know, letting some of those, that guard down of, you know, the the original idea doesn't have to be... Yeah, I don't care at all anymore. Yeah. You know? I, I'm, I always make this joke where I go, I've written enough songs that I think are great. I'm not sitting here trying to have my voice heard on the same level anymore. Like, at this point, the art of making the record, like, I feel like I can play a role in it and not be the center focal point. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if somebody came, if Danny, our drummer, walked in and just went, yo, I, like, wrote this song and it was it. Well, fucking, I'll go sing. I'll write some words and sing on it and everything else can be you and, like, I don't give a fuck. Um, I haven't always been like that. You know, it hasn't, it's hard to let go of that because as artists, like you feel super defined, like your worth is defined by what people appreciate. And it's, that sucks. Like that's, I think like the best artists have had that buffer between that. Like they're able to just create and then like the whole side of the world where they digest and process and purchase and invest and blah, blah, blah is separate. And that's like its own little like rat race game. You know what I mean? But like in as an independent musician where you're really planning the trajectory of your project and the merchandise and the touring and like the label being right and understanding the vision and all the vid- videos because blogs do not premiere songs anymore. They want to premiere videos. So right. now you've got to be a fucking videographer. Um, yeah. And, and that's just becoming like a huge part of it. Like everybody wants this, this cinematic piece now too. It's like not, sure. not just a regular music video anymore. No. It's got to be. Well, because you can go to Best Buy and buy a camera that can make something that looks like Goodwill Hunting. It's like you're at <laughs> yeah, that point yeah. now, you know, and right. like. It's, that's, that's a nutty thing, too. And for me, I like gritty. Like, the next video we're putting out is just VHS. Like, it's camcorder style. Through an app that you can download on an iPhone, because we can all do that, too. Um, but when I got my iPhone, I looked at it and said, yo, this is like a, f- a 4K camera, whatever, megapixel. I don't know what any of that stuff means. But I know that I can create content on this. Like, so why not push it? And I love working within the limitations of that stuff. Like, I wouldn't want the best thing in the world. I want what I have and I want, there's got to be a ceiling to it and I want to be, that's like we were talking about the Zoom recorder. Like I loved only having eight tracks and only having what those preamps could do and working within the limitations of that and also being impatient like pushed me to just smash it out. Yeah, do you think that the that having those limitations and some parameters like that forces you to be more creative? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine like what Michael Jackson like worked with like when he he went in a studio and there's 64 channels on the board and hey, if we need another board, we'll just bring that into. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, when yeah. they bring another Neve in, like what's up? Phone <laughs> it in. Um I can't imagine that uh, shit. Yeah. I definitely like when you bounce a record down, like the EQing where every, everything has to exist still within this space. So you have to s- jam everything into this package. That's like what the mix down is. That's why so many bands in the studio finish something and go, this is it. 
And then when they get the mix back, they're like, God, certain things are lost. It's because not everything can fit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you really have, like, the, a genius mixer is somebody who balances that all perfectly. Um, limitations are the shit. You know, I, I, I don't, if everything was so simple, like, I'd die. For real. <laughs> like, I would, like, if I had a billion dollars and I didn't have a child and everything was just handed to me, I would lose my fucking mind. You know, there has to be struggle for things have to like feel great and things don't like as a drug addict um and i say like i'm clean but like i'm always will be an addict just to clarify for anybody that's the gotharazzi that's out there um (laughs) i uh when you just do like at some point in drug use you do it, it it becomes your life completely and you do it so much and you stop feeling that high so everything has to, you have to earn each of these things. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in, all, in all of life, all of life. So um, for me, it's just like balancing all the experiences and stuff like that. And in making a record, it's working with what you have. And that's in the age where things are more accessible. Records cost less to make. Um, you can do more of it in, in your house or you know, right. wherever that home studio setup is. For sure. And I mean, that's my, my dad is a resource for me in that sense. Like my dad tours as a sound engineer. He's been doing it since the 70s, I guess. And when I, when I was growing up, I grew up in Aerosmith's rehearsal space. And my dad was their sound engineer, assistant, went and made those records with them. You know, he was demoed all their records, went to the studio, acted as the assistant in that. And How old are you at this, this point? So I was born in 82. Okay. My, my pops was, had moved to Massachusetts from Kentucky. He's working for bar bands. And then like all of a sudden he gets this gig with Joe Perry Project. So Joe Perry has quit Aerosmith. Yeah, that era. Probably out of his mind on heroin. <laughs> And my dad's working Fucking for him. Fucking hate Steven Tyler. Right. And the gigs are bigger and, uh, than what he was doing before, though, still, because it's fucking Joe Perry. Yeah. And in doing that, like, he's at a show one day, and, like, Steven Tyler's there, and he sees them talking, and, like, we can't get the band back together. They get back together. My dad inherits this new job. They do, like, that, whatever that shitty record, Done With Mirrors or whatever, that, like, nobody liked. And then all of a sudden... They hit with permanent vacation and pump. They hit their biggest singles of all time, right? So this launches my father into this, the top tier of touring. Um, and I guess at that point, like permanent vacation was like, I want to say like 86. So I'm like five years old, maybe um, four or five years old. So and you're like exposed to music pretty like from the get-go? Yeah, then? maybe it was like 87, 88. Yeah, I'm exposed immediately. So I'm going to massive shows. Um, I mean, not, not I was... I mean, you couldn't have been that old when you went to that Injustice for All. I was seven years old. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember it vividly. But I, mem- I was that young, and that was because we got into any show we wanted to go to. Um, and my dad was going to those shows to, like, hang out with his peers, other sound engineers, learn tricks. Um, and then I was just taking this all in, but it also like it killed the star struck aspect of it. Cause I'm just like these, you're getting this access. Yeah. I'm hanging out with, with like Aerosmith as a kid, 
You know, they're seeing me. I'm so around all the time. They're coming to my house. I'm going shooting with, with Joe Perry and his family. Like, these things are normal. You know, my, and my uncle, his, my dad's brother, on the flip, he's younger. On the flip to that, he's coming into the mix as a guitar tech, and then he's living with Steve Vai when he was with David Lee Roth, and he's building guitars with him. And then he ends up, as the years go on, in probably 95, locking in with Billy Gibbons. He's been with Billy Gibbons since. So yeah, that's easy top connection right. too. Right, so huh? then like these things are all normalized, and, and I don't say it in a braggy way. To me, it was just, it's been really cool to see stars up close and realize that they're like absolutely insane in a really beautiful genuine way um like being a musician in general like when we talked about the facade of like what we expect bands to be like yo being in a musician and putting your art there and touring off of it and living off of it is you'd have to be psychotic to do it because it's really it's it's completely stressful and soul draining and terrifying and weird so you build up like your bubble that you exist in, even when you're huge and popular. I think, um, yeah, so, yeah. I was around all those people like super young and didn't want to. I didn't want to like. I wanted to be a rock star from like a kid. Like I wanted to have a band, you know, like that was in there. But my uncle, simultaneously, he was like a punk rocker, and he started feeding me bands. And it started with the Misfits, and then it became GBH and Discharge and other things, like showing me Neil Young the right way, like showing me the right Neil Young. You know, those things were integral to me. Um, that was my biggest resource. It wasn't being at those shows. It was having a family member that was going to gift you that kind of knowledge early on, you know, because you're 13. Yeah. It's that, okay. that older brother effect or that older person in your life that, sure. that, you know, gives you this information that blows your mind. For me, it was like this, a neighbor kid that was maybe a couple years older and, you know, show, oh, yeah, those... show me like Primus at eight. And it's just like, <laughs> what the fuck is happening? <laughs> you should sue him for that now. Like, <laughs> but I get it. I get it. Like it's... But also, you know, like having, I, I'm a few years younger than you. I'm born 85. So pretty cool era of like early 90s music that was actually on the radio like punk rock like in some form of fashion even if it was like rancid and like oh. a more mainstream version like a band that i love like operation ivy and stuff like a couple of my first cds are that that outcome the wolves and that op ivy album yeah, and that stuff shit all, so. that shit was all important to me um early on like op ivy was important and then and out come the wolves when that came out like i bought that record i listened to it constantly and, and then the green I day was, stuff even like do you know the green day stuff i'll say straight up when i look back on it the first i guess what the collection 1039 yeah smooth that slappy hours and then kerplunk and then dookie those three records are really good. They're amazing, dude. Dookie fucking rips. Um, and then the record after that, Insomniac or whatever it is. Like those are great records. Those are actually like great records. Um, good songs. I was in a very very punk scene, like with you know skinheads, like Sharps, whatever. I feel like I cannot like the world is so racist and weird now that probably skinhead is like getting a stigma again well yeah just but it wasn't in the 90s like all those fools had been ran out or were on meth or whatever so like skinheads were of all races and they were like they were punks you know right um 
but it wasn't cool to like Rancid and Green Day and stuff after a while. For sure. And I was the youngest, so I really tried. I threw that stuff away mentally. Um, going back on it years later, I went, there's just some melodies and vibe here. Like, I think Green Day, you'll learn what a vocal pattern can do to, to heighten a song, you know? Because the riffs are what they are, repetitive. And his, he's like more melodic. Um, than like a, a Sex Pistols would be. For sure. But also kind of had that, you know, not not to put like Billy Joel's or Billy Joe's fucking songwriting up there with Petty, <laughs> but kind of that same effect of like those two and a half minute yeah. fucking punching in the face songs, like quick, in and out, you know? Well, what's, I mean, they blew up because like exactly who he was was speaking to people that hadn't already like defined who they really were. It gives people an identity. Like, music gives people an identity where they go, yo, this is exactly who I've been this whole time. And, like, now I have a way to dress and to go with it. And, like, you know, I mean, we yeah. grew up in, like, the trench coat mafia era. Like, kids saw school shoot, the school shooting, and they went. You know, the whole world was like, oh, my fucking God. And then what happened the next day? I can tell you from my school point, like, the weird kids that are wearing trench coats to school. That says a lot. Like, that kids were so disenfranchised and alienated and weird that that felt it just shows you how impressionable you are at that age um that's real you know like that's like that's why kids are on fucking xanax right now you know there's this it's it changes and it grows and for me i did not party growing up at all i just music was it like this stuff and finding that yeah when did you start uh playing music i i started playing music Started my first band with still one of my favorite people, Nick Kelly. He's a tattoo artist in Nashville. He's the most talented, drawest, <laughs> whatever that's <laughs> called, that I know. Um, and this kid, Bill Richardson, who I don't know what the fuck happened to him, but we had a band called Hellish Death Strike. This is like named, high school or what? This is like 15. Okay. And it was like a, a crusty DB punk band. And it was named after a Mortal Kombat fatality. So it's as 90s as it can possibly be. Hell yeah. Be, you know, dude. like the combination of all of it. And we did a tape. Like what was weird was we started practicing for two weeks and we wrote seven songs. And then I called my dad and I went, I have a band. And he goes, oh, I know a guy with a studio down the street. Like I'm going to book you. I'm going to pay 200 bucks and book you time. And I went, oh, okay. And we went and recorded a tape that sounded way better than a band like us should have had at that time. And we all of a sudden had this little platform for our art. Like, you know, that was, it, that made me go, oh, you can do anything. Um, we sold a hundred of those tapes and we felt, we played two shows total. We played both of like the local pinnacle punk rock venues that I grew up in, um, which looks great on paper, but we didn't do shit, you know? <laughs> and I didn't really do, I sang in a couple like, like death metal, grindcore kind of bands and things of that nature, like as the years went on. Yeah, what were you doing? Was it like guitar first instrument or were bass. you just singing or bass and singing? Okay. Drums was like the first thing I kind of learned how to play in like a punk style. Um, and then bass, and I really didn't get guitar. I didn't start playing guitar till probably 27, like on a real level. Like I played in bands where I tuned the guitar all fucked up and used pedals and made noise. But yeah. I didn't write my first song with chords till I was. 27 years old um and that started the band that kind of evolved into what soft kill is so 10 years ago i would say 
10, 11 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I had a late start. You know what I mean? Like, I was yeah. an idea person. I, wanted, I made layouts for bands that didn't exist and shit like that. Like, I wanted to be in a band, but I didn't. I was too much of a spaz to really sit down and learn how to do all this shit. Learn what one of these recorders did. Learned how to get good bass tone. Learn how to write a song. What, what kind of, like, inspired you to start writing some chords on the guitar and, like, start writing songs at, at 27? Uh, there was an acoustic guitar that had been lent to me by one of my best friends, Patrick Golden. And I just had this girlfriend at the time who could shred on, like, folk-style stuff. So I tried to start learning. And uh, I learned Blackbird by the Beatles. It's a complex song for somebody that's never finger-picked or jumped around with weird chords. And that I learned that and then started rearranging those chords into, like, trying to figure out how to play guitar. I was selling drugs in North Portland at the time, and I had a lot of free time because when you're a drug dealer, you just like <laughs> just are waiting to, to be called. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, depression and drug addiction and stuff like that like, is what made me try to play guitar. You know, it was weird. Um, and I had them laying around. Like, I had bought guitars that I didn't know what to fucking do with. And then ultimately, I just went, just try this out. And I wrote things that, to me, felt like huge advances for me at that point in my ability to play that were like starter, still to this day, starter pack. First chords you learn in practice. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, bullshit. Um, crazy. But And I haven't really grown too far past that. Like, I really haven't. Like, it's still in that same bag of tricks, but that's, I think, what makes what we do kind of special is those limitations, working within that. It's totally defines it, for sure. Do you, do you fuck with any other instruments I play regularly? Guitar and bass. I don't play, really play drums anymore. I thought I was good at drums. I had the vibe of it. I played in bands. Like I played in, somehow was the original drummer of that band, Waves. Um, I don't, I get around people that can really play drums and then I go, yeah, I'm not, I'm really not good at this. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that defines it. Like, but I could play in that band cause it was just all like, do, 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 at that time. Um, can you play well enough to use it as like a writing tool for yourself? Yeah, that's exactly what I can do. So I can sit down and I can program drums from the standpoint of somebody that can play drums. Okay. Um, and I can play drums. I just, I never have a kit long enough. Like, I'm eyeing the kit over there. I've never just had a kit set up to where it's like, you can sit down and rehearse and practice. And at this point, I'm dealing with such crazy arthritis that even playing guitar is hard. I've missed my shot. Like, I, I'm at that point, you know. Um, I learned a little of everything. I can't play i don't know a single chord on keyboards so i play a lot of single line stuff single note stuff um i get depressed about this sometimes you know because i really considering how much i've devoted to touring it's like crazy that i didn't learn how to play stuff better um so i've kind of been dedicated lately to becoming a better guitar player and like watching good shitty guitar players like johnny thunders and stuff and going what are their tricks you know the strokes are a great example the strokes play stuff that are it's like 
it's advanced in a beginner way. You know, they're doing some weird stuff, but they're just playing off of some little basic shit that, like, different blues and R&B and shit people did, you know? Yeah. And it's all about layering it. So for me, it's all about, like, what I'm good at is the layering of simple elements to sound complex. And guitar effects pedals really help with that. And now you're starting to, like, really kind of scratch the surface on what doesn't fucking drown everything else out with all these, like, new new perspective from different producers and stuff like that? Yeah, I learned from all that. Like, I pay attention the whole time. And then we take it, and, like, I start writing songs, and then in GarageBand or Logic or whatever, like, you know, you can lay out these different things based in bars. Like, I'll do eight bars of, like, a bass line and a guitar line on it, and then I'll, like, loop it. And then when I'm like, oh, the vocals come in, I should take these guitars out and maybe replace it with a synth. And I learned that from watching people like Ben Greenberg and Dave Trimfio. Um, they just, it's no-brainer, second nature to them. Yeah. To me, I'm like, when I see it happen, I'm like, holy fucking <laughs> shit. And they're like, they're doing it not in a way to show me anything. They're just like, obviously, you get this. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> totally. Dude, please show me more. Just didn't have time to, like, flesh that one out. Wanted to bring it in, you know, give you some room to play with it. In reality, I'm just like, <laughs> whoa, what is fucking going on here? Before um, kind of getting more serious as a guitar player at 27, were you always writing some form of poetry or just, like, writing words in any fashion before that no the word the the first soft kill record i think i've always had a knack at just writing words and having it be like i think it, i look back on shit and i'm like that's just trash it's like throwaway, but it's you know things are eloquently worded or it's fine it's there um but I realized that when I actually had stuff to talk about, like when I started losing people or I was really alienated from slipping like very far into addiction and getting into the streets. And I lived like a very criminal, psychotic lifestyle for a long time. And in those periods, you deal with so much loss and so much heartbreak and regret and alienation. When I started writing music coming out of that or during that it was like when it came to do the words they just poured out and it was what it was it was i had a i was able to put into words how i was feeling easily um and there was trappings in that too there was stuff where i was like yo i say this word a lot you know i had to like work as a songwriter on that but no i don't i was always somebody that could just kind of do anything well enough um, if you showed me I could get into it, I was smart enough, quick-witted enough, I was a hustler, you know? But I never put enough energy or effort into any of that stuff to have it be, like, part of my identity. I was never a poet. I was never a songwriter. I was never any of these things. What I was was a heroin addict, you know, or a crackhead, or all the different drugs as time yeah. went on. Like, that really was my identity. Like, I don't want to downplay that. Like, we, you look at these artists that are dying. And you look at these people and you go, God, it's such a loss. But I'll tell you straight up, those albums that you hold on a pedestal and go, well, this is like who def what defines them. That probably was a very small blip of their life on the day-to-day. -day. Their day-to-day -day life is the, the disease of addiction. 
and you know the the use of drugs because they're different things. Like I guess the use of drugs, as they say in like the big book of NA, is a uh, it's like a reaction to the disease. You know what I mean? It's just like it's part of it. Like the disease exists whether you're high or not. You know, and it's it's your whole polluted way of thinking and being attached to stuff. It always seems culty, like when people explain it, but ultimately, like really straight up, I was realizing everything I was interested in, from sex to guitars to music to whatever, mirrored how I uh, approached drug use too. Like it was all just to ten, you know, extreme obsession, destroying. Anything around me but that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't even remember what you're asking, but it's like. Um, but you said you came, you like came to even like using kind of later too, right? That wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't super it was early. On. Super late. It was like, God, dude, all my friends were such alcoholics as punks are, and I yeah. tasted beer for the first time, and I made the mistake of tasting like Guinness for the first <laughs> time, which is like a, it's a heavy beer to drink, you know? Yeah. And I'm like 13, and I went, "What the fuck? This is like, this tastes like diarrhea. This is crazy." And I now, like, I don't clearly drink or do anything now, but I understand why Guinness tastes good to people now. Like, I understand beer and alcohol in general. Like, I don't really get it. Like, there's people, I mean, we're in the basement of a bar. And yeah. there's people that, like, they love beer culture and this stuff. They'll be like, here at 11 a.m. to drink beer. Yes. And yeah. then it is what it is. And there's, like, cult to it. And I can clown it all day long. At the same time, I guess I get it. For me, personally, I'm like, I never was a drinker. So I was, like, into the destruction and the chaos. Like, I'd wait for my friends to get drunk, and then we'd go start that fire. You know, <laughs> or then we'd rob Walmart or do whatever the fuck we were doing. And, God, dude, at 20 years old, like, I fell in love with this girl. And she lived in New York City. And I went there, and she had a charmed life. She was, like, a model and super rich and, like, came from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And knew so much about everything that I didn't care about. And um, I wouldn't even be able to tell you if it was like a plastic facade or if it was real. Um, but I got there for our like romantic weekend. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to get some Coke. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I've seen commercials about this. Like, I'm going to do Coke and I'm going to die. <laughs> like, I really believed yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I believed it. I was like, yep. But I wanted to be accepted so much. Like, this shows about, like, who I was personality-wise. Like, I wanted, I would risk my life right now to not look like a fucking square. So she got Coke. I did a line. And she kind of vanished. Like, I had the whole weekend. And, like, we did everything that, you know, romantic lovers do. But the Coke. When I left... I left with a couple grams, and I'm like, I remember I had like this, I put it in my like little chest pocket, whatever, you know, of my shirt, and I could feel it there. Like it was there, the presence of it, there was a weight to it. I loved it. I loved how it made me feel. And uh, anybody who's done a lot of cocaine, like, it's an obsessive drug. Like you're gacked for 30 minutes, and then you got to do some more. So the readministering, and I went back to New England and couldn't find Coke. So I'm immediately like, yo, this sucks. You know, like, what do I do now? So I fucking just moved to New York City. I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to get right in the mix. I'm doing Coke, and then 
I hang out with this girl one night, and she's like, yo, we're going to go cop real quick. And I'm like, what, are we going to do some blow? And she's like, nah, we're getting diesel. And I'm like, what the fuck is diesel? She's like, hair on. Like, we're going over to whatever. And it used to buy heroin in New York City. You bought it from any Dominican in the fucked up neighborhoods that still existed. Now it's been like gentrified crazy. Williamsburg had been like, you know, bulldozed over. Part of it. If you went to the south side of it or whatever, to Bushwick, um, Bed-Stuy, hit the projects like those Dominican cats, they had like the good dope. And I went, oh my God, I know this will kill me. You know <laughs> what I mean? And uh, tried it. And what was crazy, like I've talked about this a lot, but I had like a really unhealthy relationship at that time with this girl. Um, she just liked it. She shit on me, you know? And I took it. Because I grew up like in, with a fucked up upbringing. And I just like defined my worth by what I could do for people. And she, I would wait for her calls and shit like that, you know, when she needed something. It was bullshit. And uh did my first bag of dope. And right as it happened, she called. And I just denied the call and turned my phone off. Which is so unorthodox to me. And I found it. You know, heroin at that moment. I saw I'm 21 years old at this point. And that became who I was. Like, at that point onward, I was like, heroin, and then you, like, are in the fucking shitty areas trying to cop dope, but they don't got dope, so you get crack. And then I started smoking crack. And each of these highs, it was like, yo, this is it. It's excessive. It's insane. You yeah. Know? It's like... Was there a lot of freedom to you, like, hitting deny on that call? Hell, you hell feel, yeah. You just, like... Like ah, oh, I'm I'm free. Like I'm. I was like, I'm fuck in this, this thing. Fuck this girl and fuck girls in general and like, fuck sex and fuck all this stupid shit that like maybe I don't even really give a fuck about because it don't feel like dope. Like I really felt that way. You know, I was like, dope is it. This is this is above and beyond. Um, if you've ever done heroin or opiates, if you ever had like a, a sore tooth and you got Percocet, there's something about that high that's like this blanket. Um, what they don't tell you is what you lose, you know, and then all, all of a sudden, like, you're only hanging around dope fiends, and then, like, you're in the streets, and it gets, like, real wild. And if you live that lifestyle long enough, like, your friends start to die, and then you're going to get locked up. Um, and then you start getting locked up all the time. And, you know, it goes through that cycle, but that felt like freedom. What I really loved was that I could come... And even when I started making music, because I get these little breaks. Yeah, was this all in and out? Music in was out. in and out of all of in this? In and out. And I would, like, get clean for a minute, moving someplace else. So people go, like, you know, where are you from? And I'll go, I was born in Portland, Maine. Like, I grew up in New England. But then I was in Chicago for big chunks. And I was in Denver. And I was in L.A., Seattle, Portland, San Luis Obispo. And I go on this thing. They're like, how? Like, how are you in all these places? I'm like, because I was a drug addict. Like, I, to get away and get space, I had to move someplace now. You know, like, that's what it felt like. But you always, if you don't do the work, you end up back in that same shit. So I'd do a record and it'd be popular. And, like, the thing, I'd go to a show. And you and I could talk about music. And then I'll go play. And then i get off. And then, like, I'm back in that world. And I felt freedom being detached from, like, what I hated the music scene and I hated people and I hated the expectations people had. And if you came up to me and entertained some bullshit idea of what I thought you thought of me, 
I was like, fuck you, write you the fuck off. And you're not real to me because what's real to me is like, you know, my crimey that's waiting for me to call afterwards so we can go hit that stain and like, which or hit a lick, whatever y'all call yeah. it out here. And like, go do this and like get high. And it's like, I lived this double life for so long that was insane. Um, that felt like freedom. That felt empowering as fuck, even with all the bullshit, you know? Which just something you had control over still, like having these double lives and stuff. You look at it like it's crazy in the sense that you go, okay, it's crazy to carry a gun. It's crazy to sell drugs. It's crazy to buy drugs. It's crazy to uh, be doing crystal methamphetamine and crack and PCP and heroin and fentanyl and these different things. All of these embodied are crazy. It's crazy to rob people. It's crazy to kick people's doors and go in people's houses. These are all part we're part of my life, you know, and everything else you could think about. People dying in front of me, you stick a needle in someone's arm and you shoot them up and then they die right there and you killed them. You know what I mean? Like these are things I experienced. Um, and I'm around criminals and I see people get murdered. Like I was like really out there in the streets doing the wild, wild. But, and no one expected that. Like, my family had no idea. You know what I mean? Everyone's there. Like, I slipped into that because that, like, I'm telling you, like, if you aren't going to be a victim, but you're going to live this lifestyle, you're going to be around these type of people, and this is the type of shit you're going to do. So That's your community. That's your community. This becomes your community. And for me, it was like, for me, it was just like, It felt, it was so easy. Because what's really hard is paying your bills on time and maintaining a healthy relationship and respecting your family and getting respect from them and processing your trauma and bullshit, you know what I mean? So like, I grew up with a pretty fucked story in some facets. And people have always been like, oh, that was your trauma that you dealt with, and that's, like, why you ran out and went crazy. But, like, I only remember what that pain felt like. The pain I remember is the pain I caused myself from going crazy and wild in those streets. And then also the people I pushed away because I couldn't live up to what were simple expectations of those types of commitments at that time. You know what I mean? But drugs just were it. Like, yeah. that, I, that was it. I wanted to be... <laughs> glued to a pipe or a fucking I loved that I loved just being I loved all the the gutter sketchy ass fucked up shit and, and the music community now is very PC and very about creating this safe space reality and I've never felt comfortable in that not because I'm just like I want to you know, say derogatory fucked up shit and things of that nature. But I just like, I lived for so many years in this world that is not being helped by any of these people. And this is out there and it exists. And I'm kind of like, it's pretty privileged to be able to go, oh, everyone here is included and this is good and this is safe and this is that. Well, I'm like, well, you know, you're stepping over a junkie to get to your art space that you're renting in this gentrified fucking neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like you're turning a blind eye to the suffering of this world and you know what where addiction comes from like we know that what big pharma does and we know that building a wall is not stopping these drugs from coming in and we know what our government's done and played into all of this shit and like 
there's not resources. The people like me have been villainized forever. I've been villainized by my own community. You know, the actions that I did commit that were terrible, that people tried to penalize me for, when that wasn't enough, people just said whatever they could about me. You know, to try to get me to go away because they would believe it must be, I must be a terrible person to put that before what they deem is like the pinnacle. Yeah. And that's having a record people like. Well, I think that's, it's fucked too because it just doesn't, create any sort of environment that respects like rehabilitation or like promotes that in any way there's not that in in like we talk about prison like you know like i got locked up a bunch of times i went through that shit um we were joking about epstein like dying in the shoe and i went well i was in the shoe you know i you could only really kill yourself if you just like ran into the wall as hard as possible i made that joke um, but I've had those experiences, like I've seen that shit, and it's like, there's no rehabilitation in prison. There's no rehabilitation in county jail, especially, too. And in the music scene, there's no rehabilitation. People are, are, are expected and judged by their worst action. And my wife said to me, she goes, yo, if they can only ever hate you for what they thought you were, but they can't hit you for anything you do from a step forward. That's success in, in redeeming yourself, like, you know, getting rehabilitation. I don't define, like, how good I'm doing based off how a stranger feels about me. I have that luxury. There's a lot of people that don't. And people are fucking dying. Like, you go to Port, you're in Portland right now. Like, go downtown. Watch somebody shoot up with a fucking dirty rig the last $5 they have just to get well so they can get to a soup kitchen and like eat something before they fucking shit their brains out. And that's the reality of this world. Like that's really, those are my people. You know what I'm saying? And my friends that mattered to me are fucking dead. So I'm not like downplaying my current friendships, but like those people are dead and those people for my wife are mostly dead. And I've met through her people that should be dead, that didn't, and there's part of her, like my wife has eight years clean. She was in the, all the shit I'm talking about, she did. And I've met her friends that also survived, and they immediately clicked with me and became people that I love and adore. So I've got this little network now of survivors. That's sick, but we all are realistic. You know, like we all know what the world actually is, and I'm not gonna ever go and say, yo, you said that one thing that wasn't right that one day, or I heard about this on like your resume. I'm not gonna look at your fucking resume. Your resume is the second we exchange a handshake and that forward. And your ability to come to me if you feel like you've wronged me. You know what I mean? And those friendships, like that's redemption to me is just like having somebody understanding enough and caring enough to allow you to grow. Um, make mistakes and go through that. And like, that's beautiful. It's like for so long, like you just fuck up and then that person is placed on a shelf and you move away because you can't deal with it. Yeah. And that mirrors and everything. That's like in the music scene too. Yeah, it's People, just, this is like weird shit where like we just kind of raised with this expectation of perfection that we're all supposed to be like perfect. Everything's supposed to be perfect. And if I know, things and get fucked up, it's not beautiful anymore. Dude, I mean, and we're all, like, we talk about, I mean, like, right now, like, what's the big dialogue? It's, like, um, white privilege and uh, people, the safe space mentality and these different things. And this, it's all valid. It's real. But it's also, like, 
Like we're all, at least from my standpoint, we're all like lower class. We're all broke. We're artists. We're all struggling, right? Unless like your family's paying for your loft or whatever. Like that does happen. Um, but there's all of that. And it's like, this should be, it's a struggle. You know what I'm saying? Like the life is a struggle in general. But kids are like, they respond to their own alienation and their own bullshit mentally by just trying to destroy others. So right now in the music scene, it's like the call-out culture thing. Like waiting to cancel somebody. Like people are eagerly in I feel the like it's shadows. not even the music scene. It's the world. Like it's the wor- cancel culture is, is where it's at right now. And it's incredibly toxic. Like I, to me, I, I think like maybe we've just proven that like we've failed in the sense that you and I can sit here and have a conversation and I can be candid about things and you know where I'm coming from and you know that if I, if I write off one element, if I just go, you know what, this isn't the popular opinion, boom. And you go, okay, I see where you're coming from and we can have that. Okay, then we get another person in the room and we have this same dialogue. By the time we've got 20 people, there's enemies forming and there's people that define like my candidness is like, Oh, he's toxic and polluted. And then we are at war. And it's like once, as groups like in punk rock and in, in the music scene and these things, it's like, this is supposed to be a community. And it be, doesn't become that. It stops being that. And then people start being like, showing that human, regular human nature that we pretended we're so separate from. Like, we're not like the jocks. And we're not like... The government, but we, it all is like that. Like, it, the more people in the mix, like, the more fucking unstable and messed up it becomes, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, it just plays into the, the divide, all of it. Divide is, and they, and like, the whole reason, like, people like Trump are in power is like they play off the divide. Right. Yeah, you, you know. buy into the, the, the two party system and, and two party everything system. that goes along with it. You no, know? and the fact that like it's now about your voice being heard and like everything's becoming very segregated again. Like groups are going, you know, if I'm um a feminist, vegan, so and so, I can find a group of people that only define those exact elements and that's my network. But now you're just in that puddle. Echo chamber. That echo chamber. And then there's like 40 echo chambers that don't agree with anything. And it's like we're defenseless to the greater power of like this rich white elite. You know what I mean? Which it is like money is power. And the majority of rich people in America are white. So there it is. There's that white supremacist agenda. You know what I mean? It's that. Um, And it just kind of like, I don't know. It seems that once you accumulate a certain amount of money that... You do whatever the fuck you want, and everything is just a fee. Like you, like maybe you're, you're, you know, like a ticket becomes just a fee. For, if you want to drive ninety on the freeway, you can today because that's just a, a hundred dollar fee to you or whatever to pay that ticket. Oh, for sure, know? and and it's it's crazy too. Like you now you look at it, so you got like the poor kid, you got the white, punk rock kid who is Uber PC, and he talks about how. You know, we've got to be this and anti that and like we against all of these things. But he won't even look at like, say we're talking about Portland. Like he's not going to even go past 120th Street right in his day to day. Well, the real gutter struggle of like impoverished, fucked up mess that 
we talk about the government creating, it's out there. It's in the numbers. It's in Gresham. It used to be in North Portland and Northeast, but y'all pushed it the fuck out when you moved here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like out there, like you look at in like Chicago, like Chicago, that's my city. Most people don't go south to Saramac. You know, my, my, people might live in Bridgeport and shit like that, but people don't even, won't even go to a neighborhood. They'll talk about like protecting all of this and blah, blah, blah. They won't even go to certain neighborhoods because like that's off limits. Right. But it's because it's defined by everything that you supposedly are trying to protect. Like these are African Americans that live in this neighborhood, but you don't feel safe there. You're not willing to go there and have a dialogue, and you're actually not willing to invest any energy or time into like providing resources or actually doing benefits for those things. You want to do benefits for just like what helps your echo chamber bubble. You know what I'm saying? And this is the type of shit like cancel culture. There's somebody that will listen to this and go, Oh yeah, this write this person off for these thoughts, but I'm saying straight and up and me for giving you a platform. Hundred <laughs> percent. And I and my mindset is That's like, amazing, and my wife's dude. gonna be so pissed, like that I would even say some of these things. But what I'm saying is like, I want to give back to people and to things that don't define my selfish interests. Like that's where I really feel like when we do benefits or we're going to push to do these things more in 2020, it's going to be for things that are universally a resource for those that really need it. And for me, that's at this point on a grassroots level, it's like people that are suffering from addiction, from homelessness. Um, Miracles Club here in, in Portland, they're located They've got a, a building on MLK. That's addiction resources predominantly for African-American community of Portland that was destroyed by crack epidemic and heroin and things of that nature. And, you know, they're inclusive for everybody. Those are the best NA meetings in the entire fucking city. And they have... S- iron steel recovery like there you go in there and you're like damn they're putting it down you know they've got 20 30 years and they're making serious changes um central city concern pair which mentors ki- homeless kids gets them into like art and into things like that so they can be creative um these are like art and creative expression become luxuries you know what I'm saying? Yeah. In the in the fucking day-to-day grind of life. Um, that we get to hang out for a couple hours and have this conversation. Uh, like even it's insane. <clears throat> um, that's the biggest luxury of like being a quote-unquote like pseudo-successful artist is being able to take the time to prioritize that shit. Um, but think about the people that just like they're waiting for the soup kitchen to open. You know, they're going through those things. Like those are the people that whose voices I hear. Those are, that's what hurts me. Um, I don't give a fuck if another like DIY punk venue closes. You know, that used yeah. to be like the, the pinnacle height of like loss. That's a very privileged, beautiful mindset to have. Or if know? like the coffee shop you liked goes out of business because they can't afford exactly. the rent in that neighborhood anymore. No, I hear you. Like that's a, obviously to those people and to people in that community, that's important too. But I hear what you're saying that like that's. That's like slim to nothing compared to like right. human life and that existence. I think existence. about like, you know, my rest in peace list. I think about Zach DeLong. I think about Dominic, who I named my son after. Um, I think about Maddie Rue. I think about my cousin, Christopher Combs. These are people that didn't 
want to scream to have their voices heard and who left behind so many years where they could have expressed themselves creatively. They all had beautiful artistic voices and they died because no one could understand their cries for help for long enough that they stopped crying for help. You know what I mean? Drugs took those people. Um, addiction took those people. They died alone. And that shit still destroys me. So I got to be on KGW News the other day. I went on there, I played a song for my boy Zach, and I shouted his name out. And it was funny because he and I used to raise such hell in this fucking stupid-ass town. We used to rob all these motherfuckers. Everybody was a stain. Everybody was a lick. All these stores, all this shit. Fucking Justice Center Jail, Inverness, in and out of those places. Like, we went wild. And they now I get to go on the news and, and scream his name. That was like a beautiful ironic funny thing yeah i remember um, you telling me that just the fact that you're on the news for, yeah, I was like, for yeah. playing music and in, in the studio and not just like a, a story not like yo you know <laughs> they gunned down this fucking tweaked out psychopath um changing your story and changing the dialogue like i said i ran a lot i was like in all these cities because i was running to get clean to be able to be in a place that like all these corners remind me of things like we're on Hawthorne right now. I've overdosed on fentanyl. I had a long period where I was like really strung out of fentanyl. I overdosed like four blocks over. Um, big party house was over there. Used to get super gutter into it. Used to meet my fucking meth dealer right at Cesar Chavez in Hawthorne for a long time. To not have that scare me out of the zone and to be able to reinvent what places mean to me is empowering. Um, my wife always says, you die twice when you die and when people stop saying your name. I will not stop saying the names of people and I will not stop trying to find more people that need help to make sure that they don't fall to that same fate. I wanna help people, you know? Um, the first thing that really resonated with me in recovery was somebody said, every time I go and pursue what I think I love and adore, it doesn't feel right. Like, I get it, and it's cool. And like 10 minutes later, I'm restless. And every time I have to begrudgingly do something that's terrible and that I don't want to do, it ends up being the most rewarding thing. And we could learn so much from that. So all, in, it all full circle in what we've been talking about. Like, when you get everything that you want, it doesn't affect you, you know? So it's, it's time to, like... Checks and balances. It's time to make sacrifices. It's yeah. time to fucking pay out as much as, as you take in. Um, or like, what's the fucking point? Yeah, and, and when you do get the things that you want, it usually comes with more responsibilities, too. Like, Dude, like you were saying, like, like being in like a moderately successful band, you obviously have more responsibilities to that band and how it operates. Oh, my God. Dude, the second we started becoming popular and, like, People are like, yo, you guys are doing it. You're blowing up. I realized, oh, so this is now a business, and this requires purchasing a van and requires having bandmates that can commit or, yeah, like X amount of months every year, which, like, means that you're not working at your fucking barista position full-time anymore. Like, someone's going to get your fucking shift because you're going to be in that van. All that starts to grow. You know what I mean? Like, you start to become a reality. You lock into it. Like, fatherhood's the same fucking thing. Like, I had a kid, and admittedly, and this is, like, the worst thing you can say. I had a kid because I just wanted to feel something different, you know? 
And now, a couple years later, like, looking back and I'm spending my time with my child, I'm like, what I'm getting out of it is nothing I ever expected was going to be what was important, you know? And what I'm putting into it is, complete, is stuff that I didn't even think I was going to have to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, the responsibilities in the, in the fucking... The payout is so different. So it was, it was proof to me that I was like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I learn it. If I put my mind to it, I'll learn it and I'll adapt. But, like... I would imagine that's good for your, your self-worth as somebody that's, you know, struggled with that. Yeah, oh, for sure. Like, that's, that's beneficial. And, and it just makes me approach everything in life where I'm like, there's, there's growth that can come from everything, you know? We talk about growth just from, like, writing the next record and taking what you learned from before. And even if you put out a record that people think fucking sucks, like Savior in the grand scheme of things, it did not do... It sold well, and it was what it was, and it exists, and people have said great things about it. There's a lot of people I know that, like, didn't want that record from us. They wanted Choke Part 2. They wanted new wave pop songs. They didn't get it on this one. You know, if I could have written new wave pop songs about, like, what I went through with Dominic's birth, totally would have. Didn't feel right. So, but I learned from it. I was like, yo, okay, this is like, I learned about the trajectory of a band and that you don't just define everything off, like, what you're presenting at that exact moment. Like, there's a full, the full resume of every tour you've done and every record you've put out. You know what I'm saying? Like, Interpol is still selling out shows off of having one and a half good records. Sorry, guys. You know, <laughs> my I would love to tour with no, y'all. But, like, you're, but you're right. And, it, and it's the same thing with... Um, we're starting to see a lot of anniversary tours, for like especially this pop-punk era. And some of those bands are banking still like off one record. Maybe that was great. And, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, like... like uh, through doing Soft Kill, like Jeff Rickley from Thursday is some is a fan of the band, and we've my wife talks to him more than I do. But we went out and saw them recently, and they did an anniversary of Full Collapse. And then I think the next day they did like the other record, and I was like, and they're packing shows, and it's like they yeah. were playing back in the day. And because at this point, like the world is so like they it's user friendly in the sense that you pick your experience. Now people want to know what songs they're going to hear. Like they want to come to the show, and they do that, and. uh yeah. I mean, you there's can, something cool about like an anniversary show when you know a band's going to play a record front to back that, that you that you love every song on that record too and you know what's happening. Yeah, what's the shit? Oh, man. It's the shit. I mean, it's better than going to setlist.fm. There's a plug for them. But <laughs> going there and reading the recent set lists by a band and going, I hope they, oh, they're going to play two or three songs that, you know, matter to me. Like, Page of the Lion is a band that I fucking love. Hell yeah, Another dude. one that... Bazan, man. People will go, what are you talking about? But, like, Winners Never Quit and the Progress EP in particular. And, like, Control's great. Like, there's great... Even the new record, I think, is strong. Um, but, like, Winners Never Quit is a huge part of my blueprint musically of, like, why I write the way that I do. Just the m melodic structure of, like, the bass and the guitar and the simplicity of a lot of it and how it's layered... He plays like one of those songs a tour sometimes. So it's if he announced he's going to go out and do Winners Never Quit, I will go see him regardless because I love it. 
But if you did that, I'd fucking buy tickets before they were even up for sale. I would be like the pre-sale psycho <laughs> that's, awesome, man. that's up at 9 a.m. doing that. You know what yeah. I mean? That shit's cool. I don't give a fuck. Like, people complain about Spotify. They're like, oh, we're not getting paid for this or that. And they're making all these excuses for, like, what's that and what's this? Okay. We talked about hip-hop a lot. If you really are a down-and-out rap fan, then you noticed how many stars and artists had or regional fame of selling 40 to 50,000 copies locally, becoming like thousandaires off of it, close to millionaires. Some of them became millionaires. Especially in like Atlanta, like where that, that Straight up, I mean, look at Tech happened. Nine. Yeah. When has Tech Nine ever been on, <laughs> on the radio? You know what I'm saying? And like yeah. that motherfucker is rich and he lives within his means and he's doing the damn thing because he was way more punk rock and all these kids online talking about how the music industry is like raped and fucked them, you know? Um, it's not, it's always was like that. You wanna sit here and pretend like, oh dude, the cat's out of the bag, the music industry is corrupt. I think we learned that when we were like seven years old. Spotify and playlists and all these things are what's important. You're not gonna get rich off Spotify. I still pay my bills off Spotify streams. But also like that accessibility has never been there ever so you know? dope. so like to to know that some kid you talk yeah we talked a little bit about uh some of the cool tours you've done like in russia and and just how many people show up to see soft kill in russia like just some kid can just plug in right right now and just i want to listen to this band shout out spotify and then they go to related artists or playlists and they find other things you know what i mean yeah for sure, and um, go down the rabbit hole that way. This shit's, it's the, the accessibility of it. I mean, we live, you can't watch the world change to point-and-click culture and know that, like, these little powerful supercomputers in our pockets are going to be our go-to right. for obtaining any information and content and uh, uh, entertainment on a day-to-day. And then, like, be surprised when people want to be able to just type your band name and have it pop up and have all the albums there in chronological order and boom, 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 and be able to go through it in that way. For me, it's made me as somebody who addicted to drugs for so long, who was not investing a lot of energy into like exploring music. Like now I get into these holes with it. You know, I'm like, yo, what is like Rick or Sasek from fucking the Cars' solo record sound like? And I went and listened to those on the way while we were came, coming here. There's a couple good songs. They're not great. But I was inspired and excited to find out, you know? Yeah. Um, and I didn't have to do that by, like, going out and buying the records and putting them on. And, and granted, that's the punk rock thing to do, right? Yeah. But my kid destroys my records. I don't have room for records. Like, I've got to adapt, you know? And this is, I kind of dig how the world is. I wish that people were off their phones more. But at the same time, it's just because it's just not good for you. I don't really care what people are doing. Everybody's twisted and weird as it yeah. is. You know what I'm saying? Like, at least these fools are figuring out like who the fuck they are through like whatever porn or <laughs> music they're digging into. Like, it's right there. It's not, you don't have to like backdoor find these like underground fucking communities to really explore. And we, we put that on a pedestal too. Like, we're like, oh, back in the day I had to do this, this, and this, and this. Yo, it's true, we did, but it sucked. So now it's like, yo, it's all right there. Go for it. Find it. Figure out what you like. Complain all you want about all the posers that know everything now. Great. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, if you say poser at this point in your life... What does that even mean? You're a fucking clown. <laughs> like, what a piece of shit, Mr. Cool. Like, you've yeah, got man. every fucking King Crimson record. Like, I remember when po- poser, like, became a big word in, like, my world when, like, junior high skateboarding became, like, big. And oh you wore, God. like, maybe, maybe you wore, like, an Etni shirt. And they're like, you don't fucking skate. It's just like... I'm sorry. I'm just like Yo. your shirt. And then the skate brands <laughs> that the were culture. like cool and cult and the ones that weren't. Yeah. I'm sure that shit's still going on. But yeah. like for a long time, it was like, you weren't a cool skater unless you rocked shorties and like cared shorties about Chad Shorties with the on the, on the dude, side of I the had, sleeves I and shit, dude. I had that hoodie. I remember like rocking that shit and having some like shorties chinos. Yeah. By the way, who, like when khakis were called chinos or whatever, <laughs> like that was an era. And I had my like... I was probably rocking some motherfucking, you know, the van old schools, because that was the vibe. Having the least amount of foot support. Yeah. And the most stripped down to the point was it. And I had that with my hood up, and I had, like, the coolest girlfriend in, like, 11, my 11th or 12th grade year. I'm just hanging out in the lunchroom and feeling like, I'm a fucking boss. You know? <laughs> like, this is it, you this know? This is the fit right here. And this is the fit. And it was like, <laughs> I was at that exact moment, looked exactly like five million other kids that were feeling that exact way at that point so like it makes you look at like if you're just going to be the genre defying uh one of a kind motherfucker like whatever woo 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 okay go spend your life chasing that that's not my dream like i just want to feel i just want to do what feels cool you know it feels good yeah. and is genuine like that was era that era was sucked <laughs> You know what I mean? Like getting called a poser and being scared of it and like going through and hoping you knew enough. Yeah. And just, yeah, the idea that you couldn't like support a culture that you're not like necessarily participating in. Dude, yeah, the cultures were at war back then. Yeah. Thrasher Magazine had yeah. like the punk versus raver shirts. Skater versus rollerblader. Yeah, yeah. And like I still look at rollerbladers like sideways, you know? I'm so like, yo, because of that. Like mentally, yeah. I'm just like, why? And like, I, can't, having, I can't believe you're out here doing this. I know. I'm just like, yo, straight up. You must like have a million dollars in your bank and have all this confidence. Like, I was going to say something different, but I'm going <laughs> to censor myself. <laughs> um, but like, why do I care if somebody rollerblades? They're probably having a great fucking time. Yeah. You know? like, Or hopefully they are. <laughs> like, if you ever, like, if you got good at hacky sack, like, that's some clown shit to me. But at the same time, like, yo. If that helps you process some, some shit or it keeps you present for that just, five minutes or like, whatever. If you just hit your weed pen and that's just what feels good at the yeah. moment, feel good in that fucking moment, you know? It's all about what you want to do and what feels right. And uh, that is not... Music is kind of becoming that. Like, to pull this all back, like, music is, like, genre-defying like defying now. You know, like, my band can go on tour with hardcore bands and fit right in and it can be sick and... Our merch doesn't have to look like something that Dracula would wear, and on and on and on. Like that can all be there, but it wasn't like that for a long time too. So if kids want to go back to that era, like go ahead, like count me the fuck out, <laughs> for real. I should be able to listen to Ariana Grande and like not get punched. Yeah, because that might infect your your process somehow too. That that you know, yeah. There's a you. reason like you can take little elements of all that top forty shit and like put it in your music and like it works. Dude, I remember when Jay Z put the Black album out and he talked about how Coldplay was one of the biggest influences for him to make that record. And straight up, like and like and then not going deeper and going, what did he mean by that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like for me, like hip hop for real, 
oh my god like we're just talking about the way they promote culturally like how they promoted and pushed their product that was massive for me i went oh okay icp huge influence I don't know what their music really sounds like, but I love knowing that they can sell 500 hatchetman thongs a month. And that they can throw their own festival every year. They can throw their own fucking festival. And like those kids in that community, that's what, that's funny because that really embodies what everybody like pretends our music community is all about. Yo, those fools <laughs> will kill for each other. Yeah. Those juggalo kids. Um, and I'm like, yo, that's it. Like, I, I don't care. Like, if we get to a point where we're just not able to play with any of the cool bands and no one gives a fuck about us. It is what it is. And we're the, I made this tweet about it. I said, yo, I get it. We're like probably just going to be the ICP of this shit, but whoop, whoop. You know? <laughs> like, that's how I feel about it. Like, let's, yeah, dude. That's awesome. I'm chasing a bag on this. I'm trying to feed my fucking kid and express myself at the same time. And like, I don't give a fuck who co-signs it, you know? ICP sustainable as fuck. They're sustainable as fuck. <laughs> and I went and saw them on this last tour we just did. Um, and it was just, it was like... It feels cool to be out of your comfort zone. Because, like, the life that I lived and the shit that I did, I thought a lot of shit couldn't phase me. Yo, juggalos are wild. So seeing that shit and being around it and going, like, yo, I'm not, I don't know what's going on here. That's a high. That's the shit, you know? Um, I know what's happening in any hardcore show or metal show or punk show. Yeah. Ever. Like, you can only have, I'm just going to go and count studs on a jacket, you know? Like, at this point... It's all been done. It all feels that. Like, I love getting outside of that, you know, and, and seeing what else is going on. And I wish there was, like, less Xanax and drug abuse and all this weird-ass shit for my own personal fucking right. mission on Earth. Um, but I'm also not trying to be, like, the missionary, like, show up in town and be like, you know, God says this and that. Like, that's not it. I'm not religious. That's not my vibe. And I'm not trying to force anybody to change. But I do want... I know, like, right now, our, the youth is, like, in a shit ton of trouble because of this, like, your mom's cabinet has Percocet and Xanax in it. Culturally, all these artists are talking about sipping lean and popping Zans. It's yeah. fucking crazy. Like, we didn't have that as kids. Crack was whack. Heroin was some cluck shit. You know what I mean? And, like, you might want to smoke weed and drink, and that's there's problems with drinking. Alcohol is, like, probably the craziest drug that you can be deeply addicted to physically on what it does to you. But now it's like opiates and benzos and all this stuff are culturally significant. Like kids want to, like my sister wants to pop Zans. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if she is, you better not be, but she wants to. Yeah. That's, a, that's what they're doing, you know, to party on the weekend or like, or even just, I don't know. I feel like it's easy to, to do it too so you know it's not it's not smoking weed so there's not like you're not trying to hide smoking a joint behind the fucking bleachers yeah or something. you're just popping a pill whenever you get a headache you go and you fucking you take ibuprofen it's accepted something about a prescription bottle that like just feels like it's okay you know i didn't realize that there were prescription versions of heroin i was doing heroin first and then like one day someone went yo your mom has a whole bottle of fucking oxycontin in the cabinet and i went and apparently she had gotten it for like a leg injury and didn't want to take it because it's such an extreme drug it made her feel sick yeah and i went what the fuck is that and they're like yo dude we're gonna do this shit and i'm like yeah sure whatever and i took one and then i felt that heroin rush and i went holy fuck 
these are there, and it was way more acceptable, like pop and oxy, oxy 80s, you know, that whole era of fentanyl, dude. I was like, we're talking about the fentanyl crisis. Yo, before that was a crisis, I was off my shit <laughs> on fentanyl. Like, that was the best heroin in the fucking game. And I didn't even understand how it was being fed to people. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was removed from that because no doctor was giving it to me. I was buying it from somebody who was on their deathbed and trying to raise money for their family because healthcare is that fucked up. You know what I'm saying? Like, people die and those under them suffer. But I was buying those patches and we were smoking the fuck out of those patches. And now it's killing everyone. You know what I'm saying? Like, my cousin overdosed from from cocaine and I think fentanyl like had been cut in there. Why are they putting fentanyl in coke? That's insane. But there was a time in my life where I would have gone, yo, coke cut with fentanyl? That's crazy. Let's get it, you know? But now I see the bigger picture and I'm like, holy fuck. Like, these dealers and these people out there, I don't, I don't villainize anybody because I, people that are selling drugs, like this, the way this culture and this fucking world is set up, like, there's crumbs left for a lot of us. And you're going to fucking lie, cheat, steal, and kill to, to feed your family. And especially in a lot of these, like, communities that kids turn a blind eye to, like, south side of Chicago and shit like that. Motherfuckers are out there doing what they can to eat. And part of that is by turning a blind eye to the effect that, like, what you're doing to your community is. And... You know, and that's, I'm not, I don't mean that solely from like this specific race or this or that. Like, it's everybody at this point. Addiction is just destroying everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it used to be that meth was a white drug. Every race is smoking meth now. You know, it used to be that heroin was certain communities. Everyone's off dope now. Crack is not like an African American drug now. It's everyone smokes fucking crack. Xanax, everybody fucking takes it. This is not about like, racial boundaries it's just about like the disease of addiction exists and in these communities where like there's not a lot of resources because we talk about it's the rich man's fucking world these motherfuckers are doing anything they can to get fucked up yeah. you know i mean to to make money and then there's a line of people waiting to take away that pain and it all plays into it those people though at the same time they don't give a fuck what happens to you you know and right. people you die left and right. So they're cutting shit with fentanyl. They're cutting, making fake Xanax pressed together. And uh, people are dying. And all these rappers, like, look at, like, Mac Miller. And I always, like, am waiting for, like, you're looking at it, you're, like, waiting for little Xan to die. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Little Peep. These fools, like, the rappers, and everyone goes, oh, another mumble rapper dead. But what sucks is, like, I look at them and see myself 100%. It's heartbreaking. Um, because what was there for them, right? You know what I'm saying. And then, yeah, and then, then being around this city, and like you said, you're just you're just you're walking over junkies all the time, walking around like a place like downtown, or getting off the the freeway on Division in 205, and the camp is strong, you know. The camp is strong, and that's a network. Those are people that that want to. Uh, what people I think don't understand is a lot of those people want to be there. They do, because that's what means the world to them is that's that their high. community too that high you know like you get locked up here i've been locked up all over this fucking country the difference when you get locked up here is you walk into a dorm and 
it's not the South Side Mexicans and the Bloods and the Crips that are running shit. It's all these fucking white boys. And they all come from different drug-fueled cliques, street cliques. 5150 sick boys. All on a bitch. AOB. Um, no one's going to talk about this shit. So, like, <laughs> sorry the world. Oh, it's all good. These get written off as these white supremacist organizations because people think, like, when you go to prison and stuff like that, like, it is a very racial environment. These things are super segregated. And that sucks that the system has played it like that. But these are, these are tweakers and dope fiends, you know, uh, felonious block kings, FBK. These different groups, Northside family, um, these are groups that appear to be gangs. But in reality, these are just groups of people that are, are staying high. And Portland has that uniquely. So you get in there and you'll be hanging out and people are like, like yo, who do you run with? And I'm like, I don't run with none of this shit. And they're like, oh, okay, well, this is the rules of the dorm and woo woo, yeah, yeah. And then next thing you know, they're like, hold on. And a dude comes into the dorm and they're like, yo, you stole my skateboard like two months ago. And they're fighting. You know what I mean? And you're like, yo, this is some petty ass street <laughs> shit. Like, this is you insane. Stole my yeah. Right. It's that real. But these motherfuckers, like, that's their life. You know? And they'll be like, oh, to be a sick boy, you got to shoot meth up in your neck. Now, you should probably, if you're a drug addict, you're doing that anyways. But this is a rite of passage and a celebratory thing to them. These, like, drugs... That's how our world is at this point. It's probably always been that way, but now it's like people are celebrating their demise because this is not the land of opportunity, you know? This is like Trump is our president. That is incredibly sobering. (laughs) This shows you the state of the world. It shows you how, like, little voice we have. Um, The political spectrum and the shit that we see in the news is terrifying. And we live in a community like in Portland where... I believe they use these camps to take the quality and value of an area down so they can, like, destroy that, then push it, then build, tear everything down, build condos up. And they've been doing that forever. You know what I'm saying? It sucks when you're a punk and you realize that, like, you're playing into that. Like, you move to that neighborhood first. You gentrify it. Then you get gentrified the fuck out. Then they get pushed out. And then who owns it? the city again, you know, or whatever billionaire from Idaho decided to come here. You know what I mean? Like, that's just crazy. Vicious so, like, cycle, man. Think about your blueprint or your footprint, right? Yeah. Um, think about that in the music community, too. All this shit, I think, is kind of universal. Absolutely. It sounds convoluted and insane and crazy, but this is the shit I think about. Like, No, I, 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 the inside is... Tremendous for me, man. I lost one of my best friends to an overdose this this past year, and and just getting to spend a lot of time with him the last few years, and and knowing what he was going through, and and kind of living that that double life at times, and you know hiding shit, and um, you know doing what he could to try to present himself in front of this group or or that group there, and but just knowing he was struggling, and then yeah, to just like get that phone call one day that he didn't make it this time, you know? And I, I think that's uh, when I started diving into the music and, and finding out that a lot of the inspiration for, for it is is based around mortality and, like, a lot of the people that you've lost in your life that, I don't know, I felt like there was this parallel and, like, I connected heavy to that shit. And so it's it's beautiful to for me to, like, get to sit down and, like, listen to the, the mind of an addict or just, like, what you've gone through just to get some more insight on my friend and shit, you know. 
So Yeah, you don't have to lose everybody. You can lose one person, feel that helplessness. Because what's crazy when you lose somebody is you go, what you you look in so like you look at yourself in a mirror and you're like, what did I not do? What was I not? Yeah. You know what I mean? I've got people Definitely. that die that I feel responsible for. I've got people I die where it is what it is. And what's crazy is I've got the perspective. I know straight up, like with my father, when we rekindled and fixed things, he's like, I thought you hated me. I didn't understand why you were acting the way that you were. And I'm like, you're invisible to me. You know, this is it. This is the only thing I fucking gave a fuck about was getting high. And I would wait till you turn around and grab everything I could and run out and know you were going to turn back and go, he's gone and that's gone. Two plus two. Yeah. There was no risk to that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't give a fuck. And I knew that. And I still go, what could I have done for some of these people? And the only thing that works, like, for me, really, honestly, and I hate it because, like, the last thing I wanted to be was be, like, part of, like, the N.A. cult. I don't want to be a Freemason. I don't want to be, like, any of this goofy-ass shit, you know, like, this corny-ass shit. I didn't want to be in, like, this crew stuff. And, like, and I ran with, like, some of, like, the most heinous gangs in America, like, through my, my wild street shit, like, heavy-duty-ass fucking shit. But I still was like, yo, this, like, N.A. shit seems corny. But it's the only thing that works. The fellowship of it, working the steps, having a sponsor holding yourself accountable constantly. Like, it turns out, the amount of effort that you put into getting fucked up, you're going to put that tenfold into staying clean. It is that hard. Nothing is fucking easy. You know? Because we live in point-and-click culture, it seems like everything can just get, like, ordered and dropped off at our doorstep from experience to actual physical product. It's not true. Like, imagine if we could all just write the best songs in the world and voice our artistic creativity just, like, fluidly without any effort. We have a lot of like really great pointless albums, but turns out this is all like the flow of life and shit is not easy and shit is super fucking hard. We lose friends and those friends like, for me, like you're like getting some insight into like the mind of an addict. For me, it's like I go, I can obsess over like what I could have done or I can obsess over what I can do for other people and at this point I don't want to just help those that like mean so much to me everybody in the world means a lot to me for real yeah and I don't know I, I think it's also just the the impact of seeing those those people on the streets and, and stuff is like even heavier for me now like every time I see one of those people I see my friend and, like these people are like out there and sick and like chasing chasing the high and shit and where they're at I'm not sure what drug he was on. It was, it was like a heroin thing. Like okay. that was definitely like his main go. I don't know what the the final, yeah, the final call was. You know. Um, what's really crazy is like when you go into the rooms in NA. You, God, dude. Like I've probably said this before, like in a recorded format, and somebody's gonna clown me for it and be like, "Just get some new material," and my wife hates this because I say this constantly, but like a thing that resonated with me deeply within the book is like you enter NA and you're released from the bondage of your, uni your uniqueness. So like all of a sudden, like it doesn't matter like what my fucking trajectory was. Like I'm here, I have the disease of addiction, it mirrors yours. You and I will go end up under the same fucking bridge, stuck to the same pipe or needle, 
and have the same lack of standards and you know what I mean? Like we'll do what it takes to get there. And that's what's like really incredible is like you seeing those people downtown, you're seeing your friend. Like they are in the exact same mind state. Everything about your identity and your character and how that fuels you on a day to day, you lose. That's how soul sucking addiction is. You know, it sucks. It's like you stop being yourself. You get those moments. I have my crimeys where like we had those moments. We saw each other. We were we loved each other for who we were internally. Um, but we compromised all that for like the greater good of, of getting fucked off. Um, I wanted to die. I know that I did, you know, because I wouldn't have done the shit that I did with the risk. Um, that's crazy to think that in a first world country that supposedly is like the most progressively forward thinking and full of resources and full of any dream you can want obtaining it that I would want to die. Yeah, that's wild, man. Um, what, what, what kind of pulled you out and got you, got you clean and one wanted to, to shake all that? Um, or was there like kind of a triggering moment for it all? Yeah, I was, I was, I dealt with opiates and crack and PCP for a long time. PCP played this like weird role. And PCP was the eye opener for me because PCP is the first drug I ever did where I went, I don't like this. But where I was at in Chicago, PCP played a big role in the circles that I was running with. It's always been a drug that mostly affected like the African American community. And I was kicking it with African-Americans that were involved in crime is the vague way to put it, officer, whoever's listening. <laughs> and I started smoking sherm. And the first time I did it, I lost my fucking mind. And I went, this is horrible. And someone went, oh, you didn't do it right. You got to wait, just let the little sizzle hit. And I went, okay. So I started smoking PCP constantly to try to figure out how to get the right amount of hot. You know what I mean? But next thing you know, you like, Barreling down fucking California Ave, headed south past Cook County Jail, you know, with a 38 pistol cooked, and the whole world is moving in slow fucking motion. And at any second, you're hitting somebody and killing a fucking family, or yourself, or both, or getting arrested and throwing your life away for something that you don't even like the feeling of. And I started realizing that's what was happening. And I went, yo, I think I might be a drug addict. It's crazy to think about that. This is so many years into constant down and out use uh, after having been locked up and done time and come out and go back in and all that shit that I'm like, you know what? I think I might be addicted to drugs mentally. I knew times when I was physically dependent and that was an eye opener. So I was like, I got to get out of Chicago. Like I'm gonna die. And I almost got locked up for some heinous ass shit there. And, uh, just being involved in the wrong shit. And I yeah. went, I gotta go. So I came back to Portland and within 48 hours, I was on crystal meth for like maybe the third time in my life. But this time I went, yo, I really like this. This is a different thing. This is it. And my body got sucked down to like 170 pounds. I'm like 250 right now, just for reference. And everybody around me was watching me die. And my wife, now wife, came into it and she had had years clean and she just looked at me and goes, yo, I know what you're doing. 
Everyone else just thinks you're out of your mind and like knows you're on something, but I know exactly what you're on. I know exactly what you're going through and I'm here. And I went, oh, I can just tell you anything. So I just started telling her all the fucked up shit. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I'm doing right now. And like, I'm out of my mind. I love this. And apparently she started telling me like, hey, you were talking about last night. You hit me up and said you were standing on a ledge and about to jump out the window um, and die. And I'm like, I don't remember that. And then I looked back and it was there and it was happening. I was nine days up cooked. And I went, fuck, dude, this is like, what is happening? Like, this is my reality, you know? And when I pried myself away from meth, admittedly, I still was like, I wish the world could get that I can go get fucking tweaked out once in a while, and then I'm okay. I can balance it. If I could just do it for like a week, a month, you know what I mean? Or just administer a little enough. But the world doesn't get that, so I've got to get clean. Like it was not like heroin and these other drugs where I'm like, I'm going to die. I did not get that. You know what I'm saying? Like. It was so different. It really felt like it was connected to my creativity. I really thought that by putting that down and entering a relationship with somebody that was clean and then ultimately having a child, that that was like, God, it was a hard choice to make. So that was, that was crazy. So I got into the relationship and would stay clean for a bit and then have like a relapse and you know go out and out and this is me being forthcoming. But I eventually just like, pretty quickly realized that wasn't going to work. And I went into rehab. And when I walked into the door at rehab, I realized that I was making the final choice between dying on the streets if you want to just be gritty about it or owning up to being a father because my kid was going to be a child at some point and not just a baby in a crib and um, stepping up, you know, and... I had gained leverage with my family again and talked to them. And when my cousin Chris died, it fucking broke my heart because everybody didn't know what was going on with me. When Chris died, my family looked around and went, oh, my God, I can't believe it. He was the baby of the family. He was, like, the one that couldn't do wrong. And he had done so much wrong. He was, like, federal investigated for fucking forging, faking, making fake money, counterfeiting, going ape shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Bought a truck with his dad's credit card just to sell it for drugs. Like, he was out. And uh, when that happened, that opened the dialogue between me and my family about, like, what I'd gone through. You kind of let everybody know. Um, All that that stuff accumulated played a huge role. And now I'm at a point where it's like, God, life seems really long. And it's, like, clean for the rest of this? Wow, that's going to be hard. Constant work. Um, just to, you know, head head towards wrapping this thing up and kind of tying it back into the music. What is uh, what is that like comfort or the, the that you find in in the writing of music and and how much does that help you process kind of everything? Um, I write a song. And then I write the lyrics and I lay them out. And I look at it and go, wow, yeah, that's, this sounds great. I love this. And then I step back and listen back on it later. And then I go, oh, that's what that's about. So for me, it's like after, it's like clarity and uh, 
closure that I get after the fact. It's, there's a couple songs I wrote, like when Zach died, I went in and wrote this song, Pretty Face, and I poured it all out. And in there, I'm talking about literal experiences. I'm saying like, I laid there on New Year's, your lips were turning blue. I screamed and prayed and swung my fists and beat the life back through. I never thought on different paths we'd cycle back around. I never thought I'd see you fall and stay there on the ground. And I meant that, you know what I mean? Like I mean that saying that, it makes you wanna cry. And then there's times where like, I look back in certain songs and I go, I had no idea what that was about until now. Like I get it now, you know what I mean? Like it's abstract in a sense. Um, I can't do anything but be honest in it, you know? And it gives me closure, but in a lot of ways what it really does is it reminds me that like, I'm gonna, I have to just keep working on myself. That's really what it does. That's the, that's the relief I get as I go, oh, I'm still human. Reminder that I'm still human. I still feel, I still hurt. I still can lose all of this at any second and I still have so much to gain. I feel that way, I'm optimistic. You know, but I'm also realistic. Um, the type of addict that I am, if I relapse at this point, I lose it all. I'll be back on the street and I will die. Period. You can't <laughs> no. go back in. There's no like, they always say, I got another relapse in me, but I don't got another recovery. And I was like, whatever, old timer. <laughs> and then I went, oh, yeah. I That's get it. real. Like at this point, my family does not deserve to be put through anymore from my mom all the way down to my son. Um, and I can't even balance these things playfully. Like I can't smoke a little weed. Can't take a shot once in a while. Like I am down and out. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. That's just like who I am, like addictive personality. I was born into this shit. You know, my mom and my dad are addicts in their own respect and I'm not calling them out. Like my dad smokes pot, my mom drinks. And they manage it, and they do their fucking thing, and I respect it. I can't play that card. I can't roll those dice. Um, I'm so jealous sometimes, you know? The ritual of getting fucking high every morning was like the shit. Even if it was pop, I was like, yo, at least it's there. Yeah. So, yeah, the next record that we're doing, um, everybody will know what label that's on here shortly. Um, but it's called Dead Kids R.I.P. City because this is Rip City. It's R.I.P. City to me. Yeah. It's a play on the Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City. That's like, awesome, man. I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks. No, that's, um, that's cool, man. That's a every song is about a person. Every song is about an experience, whether it's a person that lost directly and that I miss every day or somebody that like my wife or I met and Dick couldn't even tell you their name. But they were part of that life out there. Yeah. Um, and it's the most thought out, realized thing that I've ever been part of. And the entire process of promoting this record and the platform to give back is going to be a huge part of it. And I'm really excited to start to re reveal that like as it grows. Right on, man. What's it been like to see like this soft kill community just become bigger and bigger? You know, it's so funny. This is nuts. Um, I was parked my car and I started walking and I was walking on Hawthorne and I was like, God, this place, like, it's always been hipster strip, right? I'm like, yo, it's changing even more. Like, this still feels like it's evolving. And this car pulls up and these, this girl and this guy get out and they're like so dialed hipster. And I'm like, 
God, motherfucker, like these motherfuckers, you know, like this is it. I'm not calling anybody out. I was just like the, they just embodied something, right. you know, that is not who I feel that I am. And the guy, the girl walked by me and then the guy walked by me and he went, hey. And I went, what's up? And he went, soft kill. And I went, oh, yeah. Hey, man, how you doing? <laughs> and he goes, uh, love your music. And I went, thank you so much. And I kept walking and I was like, fuck, dude, I'm an asshole. You know what I mean? Like in my mind. But it's like, it's cool, dude. It's cool that like that we're celebrated in Portland as heavy as we are. And it's cool that it's universal across the world. And I love seeing that grow. And I don't take it for granted at all. Like, I really don't. I have a lot of friends that plug away at shit that, for whatever reason, isn't going anywhere. And I don't, and it's, there's, I don't know what the rhyme or reason is to it. But I don't take it for granted that, like, we have a growing platform to do this shit. Yeah, especially as somebody that's, like, played to empty rooms in the past. And, like, you and Conrad have been... Like known each other for fifteen years, Yo, playing in different our old band. bands. Like, did not do shit. You know, so what that mean? must be so cool for you two to like have that growth together. Yeah, we were talking yesterday that Conrad and I just felt blessed that, like, in a forty-day tour, there'd be like three shows that we go. Yeah, it wasn't worth it. It used to be the three shows that were it. You know, in old right. bands, it was like, "Yo, man, Cleveland really gets us," and now it's I'm blown away. I'm blown away by the response we get in a lot of these places. And it's sick. And a lot of it is because of these seemingly corrupt musical industry things like Spotify and social media. It all plays a part. It's why everyone can hear about your fucking band. So stop taking that for granted, people. Like, just put your shit out there. Know that what you're presenting is real. And the rest is just going to, like, grow the way that it does. Or you can be in an existential crisis for the rest of your life and then just turn into somebody that doesn't make music and is on Twitter and I'm not calling anybody out, but I see this shit, like these fools on Twitter that are just like, yo, the music industry did this to me and this is how it feels and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yo, that sucks because you could just be writing a song right now. You're just talking. The rest yeah. of this, you know? Like, You're not doing anything about it. I get it because I know you, you might not have got paid off music. You're definitely not getting paid off tweets. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, fuck, man. We just did two hours, and um, I I appreciate the music so much, and like just getting getting the hang, dude. Uh, just I appreciate the the vulnerability of the conversation. This is definitely. I hate to, you know, play favorites of of doing this for like nearly two hundred episodes, but this is a this is like a big a big one for me. Like this conversation was real as fuck and like i said just getting some insight on the 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 mind and the the life of an addict and just to see how you've you've kind of you know turned this thing around and every every day is the the struggle but like just to see that you're doing so well for yourself and and that you want to help people and i just think it's all like super beautiful and the music like i finally got to see you play for the first time at that pickathon set and yeah like so weird it was so fucking cool though like it was that a was great a, set there was some crowd surfing yeah, yeah i was like, like blown away i'm like oh okay 4 50 p.m on the tree line stage outside playing goth pop music and kids are going off and this is the shit like this is the shit you yeah. know i felt felt reaffirming you know at that moment but um you know, I have all these like NA tags, but the first one you get says just for today. And it's like for real, you know, like if you live your life like one day at a time, like it just keeps you grounded. Um, I never did that. I did that 
inadvertently through drug use because the days didn't matter. It was just like that exact moment. But just in addiction and in recovery and in life and in music, just pushing one day at a time keeps me balanced. Yeah. And that's like a huge part of this for me, you know. So I super appreciate being able to come here and talk about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I don't get to. I hope it's not like misconstrued or taken out of context. And I really promote the idea that you should be able to hit up artists and ask them directly, like, to clarify things. So, like, anybody can always do that with us. Um, no matter what it is, from, like, what our guitar effects we use to, like, wh why we said something they felt was so stupid. You know what I mean? Or what lyrics mean. Like, it's always there. It's not invasive. Um, if I don't want to answer you, I just fucking won't. <laughs> right on, man. Um, we're going to play it out with Cry Now, Cry Later. One of my favorite jams off of off a of savior me too um but yeah i'm stoked i'm stoked for all this new music that that you guys are gonna drop and um hope we can do this again sometime yeah anytime i feel like we could probably talk for another two hours but i've had to pee for the last hour so yeah me too um, i drink like two coffees and a water and I've gauged how much I've said by like looking at you and I'm like, yo, I have not taken a breath in five minutes. <laughs> no, like, you're great, man. You're great. This is, this is, but yeah, anytime it would be, it would be sick. Really dope. And shout out to the rest of the band, Owen and Conrad and dude, who's playing drums right now for the Danny. band. Danny's like crushes dude. Yeah. Danny like he, he plays with some, like some gnarly intensity. Like I love just hearing how hard he hits those drums danny's it's great and every drummer is a weirdo and what's weird about him is like the most beautifully manageable and sweet i think like he's a sweetheart but he's one of the most sincere down-to-earth individuals that i've ever met and i've never said that about a drummer in my <laughs> life because y'all are crazy but yeah it's love and then also nicole too nicole who is like Spirit animal impromptu management due to the fact that we're unmanageable. Um, she's the behind the scenes there. And like, I know it's like, there's like this stupid, overtly sexist fucking concept of like a Yoko Ono. But that's like, people get, you know, partners get written off as, and that sucks because like Nicole's the reason we do pretty much like everything that we do. She pushes us. We throw ideas on the table. And then they show up in the mail and we go, whoa, <laughs> you know, and that's sick. So like people like her and uh, shout out the library too. This is like a sick ass little venue. Thanks, man. Um, and I'll put all the links to the to the band in the episode notes, but also want to I'll have you shoot them over to me. But I want to include like any resources for people that need need help with like addiction or anything. I'd love to like include those up there, too. Yeah, whatever for you, sure. Whatever I was you'd like to have up there i'll throw a bunch of that stuff in and i'll say that anyone listening like go on the na website find a meeting and get into there and at least like if you open your mouth in those rooms you're going to find people that are compassionate and that's going to be the start so but yeah hell yeah man we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show which is it's a program it's, so. <laughs> it's a program yeah you nailed it that, that's it that's 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 the jam I don't know what that means. It's whatever you want it to mean. Okay. It's actually just the way that, uh, like, my grandfather would say, like, the news program. He always yeah. says, like, program. program, you know, just like that that old school. Is he Illinois? Uh, no, no. He's from California. 
Oh shit. Yeah. Okay. Maybe born in Colorado, but either way, it doesn't. I just figured it yeah. was like the weird vernacular. No, just, like, he's just like, oh, let's let's watch the news program tonight. So yeah, the program, yeah, it's a program. It kind of doesn't mean anything, but it means whatever you want it to. And I don't know, it's a good way to uh, just cap off every episode. Yeah, no, totally, it is. Um, Do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna play it out with the uh, cry now, cry later, and uh, that's the jelly jams. And we will catch you on the flip side, Portland. R.I.P. City.
It's a program? <laughs> I don't know what that means.